but you knew that there was a live feed in there and the whole world was watching this live feed um so you knew every time you went on you've got to get you've got to do this right one you've got to do it right because the world's media is looking at you but two you've got to do it right for the boss we we've got to do this for the boss and the 12 of us who were on the funeral before we stepped off we said we've got to do this right hello and welcome to the Menfulness Podcast. A happy new year to you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sam Watling, and we are searching for what's going on with men and their mental health. How can we get better at having those tough conversations and trying to become more self-aware and authentic in our day-to-day lives? Today, we've got Mark Sullivan with us, and he'll be talking about his multiple careers, including how the army has played a huge part in his whole life. But first of all, I wanted to just say, I hope that you've had the best Christmas that you could It's definitely a strange time of year and there's lots of expectations and overwhelm and missing people that should be there. Um, And for me, it's definitely come at the right time. It's meant a little bit of time off work for me um, as I've found myself in a bit of a rough patch. Just generally, I've realised I think that I've been knocked off my game by a bit of burnout and the realisation that I'm quite often just running at a million miles an hour and overcompensating for the, that imposter in me that's telling me that I'm about to let somebody down. Um, and I, f- I found myself in a position where I'm not talking as much as I usually do because I've, I'm distracted by all the roles that I think I'm supposed to play, trying to be the best partner or parent, even trustee at mentalness. I'm, I'm, I see, I see myself as the one that people are supposed to come to um, and I, I want to be useful and I want to help, not the one reaching out and asking for help. So that must change. Um, and we must remember the first rule of mindfulness, right? Um, speak up, you know, and I think that's it. I, I, I've lost track of that a little bit. Um, so I want to get my healthy habits back too. I, I know that when I get up, early and I run and I drink water and I breathe deep and I stay present that I am in a better place to deal with all the other stuff that the world throws at me um so if this Christmas was tough for you then I see you and I hope that together we can look to this new year to find a little more peace and acceptance um let us know What is there going on in your life that you could take control of and make a immediate and meaningful change for you? I'd love to hear it. So now for Mark Sullivan. Mark is an army veteran turned personal trainer turned university lecturer. His path through the army is is a fascinating one and it eventually leads to a leading role in the TV series Lads Army and a career-defining moment or two as part of the Queen's bodyguard for Her Majesty's funeral and the King's bodyguard for His Majesty's coronation. This conversation is full of insight on life, the fitness, the importance of discipline, integrity, and looking after other people. Mark may well now be retired, but he's still running marathons. He's still working for the Sovereign. His energy, his relentless service, it's an inspiration for me, and I hope it is for you too. Let us know what you think after this chat. Please like, share, let people know if you enjoy it. Here he is. It's Mark Sullivan. 
Good evening, Mark. Good evening, sir. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. It's uh, it's lovely to have you in the house. And how are you today? You all right? Today is a good day, yeah. Good. And uh, you're someone who was sort of pointed to me by Jack, our um, chairman, and, and he sort of said, you need to speak to Mark. This guy's got a, a real story. And this was shortly <laughs> after the um, the Queen's funeral. Yep. Um, and, and we'll get on to how you had a really remarkable part to play in that um, in that day. And so, uh, but before we do, I wonder if you'd be happy to give us a little bit of background about you. What's your name? How old are you? Where are you from? That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, name's Mark Sullivan. Um, I'm 65 years old. I'm 66 next month. Um, I was born in Shorncliffe in Kent. Uh, I was actually born in the military hospital, which uh, according to my father was then pulled down within minutes of me being born. <laughs> so they would never have a chance of having anyone else again. Um, my father was in the forces. So travelled around quite a lot as a child, um, predominantly in the southeast because he was in the guards. A um, couple of time, two years in Germany when I was a very young child, and two years in Hong Kong, but most of the rest of the time was down south or in London. Eighteen years of age, joined the army, joined the regular army, did twenty-two years with the regular army, left, and did a further twelve with the reserves. Um, whilst also lecturing at York St John University, I see. So you 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 were you were still you did both for a while. Yes, I see. Yeah, because the reserves, because it's one weekend a month, um, you could fit that in around the university work. Um, what I had to do was, whenever there was a two week course to go on, which would happen once a year, um, the university because they were an, an employer that would support the military would give you half of those two weeks unpaid leave the rest of it you had to take as paid leave wow and is so is the is the reserves voluntary for so you still yes. paid for your time in yeah it, or... you're paid for your time right so if you did a weekend you'd have two and a half days pay because you're coming on a friday and finish um you'd get a two-week course you'd get paid if you fulfilled all your training requirements which was 27 days as a minimum yeah. um and the camps and the training, they would then give you a tax-free bounty as well. Right. So a lot of people I know who were in the reserves, one, they do it because they enjoy it, but two, they use the money from it uh, to pay for a holiday each year, that sort of thing. So it goes into a separate account so they can see what they've used yeah. and they can use it as holiday funds. And, and do you keep you, you, the rank that you had throughout and is, are you able to sort of continue no. your career in that respect? Or? When I joined the reserves... I'd left the regular army as a warrant officer class one, joined the reserves, and they said, look, because of where we are, there's n we can only give you four years right. because of your age at the time, yeah. and you'll we can only make you a warrant officer class two. You'll never be a warrant officer class one. I said, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. And then within two years, they changed the rules so I could stay on a bit longer. Right. So I ended up doing 12 years. And they also changed the system, and I ended up as a warrant officer class one again. Right. So I managed to get it twice, <laughs> um, which is a bit odd. Um, and my last two years were actually based in Strensel, and where I, was, I went back to what I'd been doing for years in the regular military, which was training initial recruits in the uh, reserve forces. Right, training them from a fitness perspective. Uh, no, it? no, right. I was not a physical training instructor in the military. Right, I see. Um, because one of the requirements for any physical training instructor is you have to be able to swim, and I swim like a brick, so <laughs> I was never going to be a, a PTI. Right. Um, so I was uh, a drill instructor, um, a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear warfare instructor, 
a skilled arms instructor um, and field craft and tactics. Right. And did you, when you got in, so at the young age of 18, did you know that the were these... Were these things that you were already interested in and knew you wanted, or did you find your way into those things? Lord, no, no. Um, it was it was weird when I joined the military at eighteen. I'd I'd gone through school and everything else, and obviously school was a bit odd because every two years we moved somewhere else. Yeah. And I was in Hong Kong just starting my G my O levels. It's that long ago. <laughs> yeah, GCSEs. Never heard of GCSEs. And I was just getting into my O levels, and I loved history. Right. And we were doing history. And we were just about to get to the French Revolution. And my favourite bit of history was, and still is, the French Revolution. Arrived in the UK, go to school in Caterham in Surrey, pick up history. They've just finished the French Revolution because they're doing a different exam board. So I didn't cover it at all when I was in school. Luckily, I had the interest. um, If we talk about your early life, maybe come back to um, when you joined up, because that must have been really rough just having to move around so much uh, was your schooling within the forces were you schooled by right in hong kong it was a military school right which um, and that's it's not taught by the military it's a mini, a military school uh, civilian teachers and everything else but it's within a military structure the military help organize it but it's all civilian teachers right. um it's normal exam boards etc cetera, etc cetera. but it basically do did I find it tough? No, because it's what you had. Yeah, I the see what only you mean. thing I, I think, I think I gained yeah. life experience because you're coming from the military background. The one thing you're good at is making friends because you know you've got to make friends quickly because in two years you're going to make some new friends. Right. So you get really good at interpersonal re- relationships. What suffered, and I freely admit this, was my education. Yeah, um, and I don't mean overall life education because my life education was superb but actual academic education was probably suffering because of it so i was doing o levels and a levels i picked up about six or seven o levels i can't remember now exactly it's that long ago um i did three a levels and i got an o level pass in one of them and failed the other two right um so but some of this was because you were missing... You know. I was missing bits. Yeah. And academically, maybe I struggled a bit more. Um, certainly when you look back on it, I think, yeah, academically I did. So academically, not so good. Life experience, superb. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of military families will send their children to boarding school. Right. And I know there's been a recent debate about, oh, we should get rid of boarding schools. Boarding schools are only for for people who are rich. They're not. Most boarding schools are not for rich people. A lot of military families will send their children to boarding school. They will have an, a, an allowance to help them yeah. because they've decided to do that um, because that means the child stays in one school while the parent's moving around. Yeah. I was asked if, by my father if I wanted that um, just as we were due to go to Hong Kong. And he said, you can go to the Duke of York's military school, which is in Dover, yeah. or you can come to Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, that took about five seconds to decide. How old were you at that point then? You were... I was 11, coming up to yeah. 12. So I just thought, oh, this is a no-brainer. I'm going to Hong Kong, aren't I? Brilliant. Um, so I went to Hong Kong. That's I would have probably that... got a better academic education if I'd yeah. stayed at the Duke of York's military school. Yeah. But I wouldn't have had that life experience. Other than they would have put me on a plane to come out on holidays and I would have had to fly on a plane from from UK to Hong Kong on my own. Yeah. And back again. Yeah. Um, but I think overall, I think the life 
experience helps you in life more than yeah. the academic stuff. And I think it's really fascinating that you were given that choice. You know, that, that it wasn't just a, this is what you're doing. You're 11 yeah. years old, you do as you're told. It was yeah. a, what do you want to do? Yeah, and it was unusual. Agency. I mean, I was quite surprised that my father offered me the choice. Yeah. Um, it was unusual. Normally it was like, you know, we're doing that. Yeah. And I think this was my father thinking, let's be nice, let's get him back into the grammar system. Because yeah. in Hong Kong, there won't be a grammar school and a comprehensive there'll be one and that's yeah. it so he said do you want to and i went no i'm going to hong kong yeah. um i don't care about the, the other stuff i'm off uh, yeah. you know hong kong fabulous um so yeah i did duke of edinburgh's award there oh, so yeah. we got into the new territories um you know it, it was brilliant i mean my father um it was the first time while i was in hong kong the first time i consciously remember my father lying to me um, he and his brother, who was also serving in the army at the time, they took me to a girly bar. I was 13 and a half. And when we walked into this topless girly bar, this is when my father lied to me. He said, don't worry, when you've seen one pair, you've seen them all. He lied. <laughs> and at 13, I didn't think he was lying. But I now know, obviously, with life experience, that he lied. He also did say, he said, whatever you do, don't tell your mum where you've been. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Did you ever? No. Oh, well done. Never. Well done. <laughs> um, wow. So, so yeah, as you say, you had in your mind a richer, more varied life experience. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think as well, it's really interesting to hear you say that actually you got better at making friends because the first thing that came to my mind was, oh God, how do you make friends when you've only got two years? And how do you? But actually, you do it quicker and more yeah. effectively. It's weird. The military people or military children. All do, automatically. Yeah. He's walking, do, do, do. I arrived yeah. in Caterham and they didn't because they were all from primary school since they were five and so on. So it was a really odd situation where I was coming in doing what we normally do as military families and they were looking at me like, who are you? Right, what are yeah. you doing here? We've known each other since we were five. What, you're like an interloper. Yeah. So it, it took a bit longer yeah. There, because it wasn't a military type environment. Yes. So there was only a few of us in there compared to the, where else, where most military families. Um, so it was an odd one in Caterham, but because we were there for four years, Yeah. because um, my, my parents were getting divorced and my father was moving on with his military career, Yeah. that enabled me to get over that initial hump of they're not talking to you because they've been to, together since they were five and you've just jumped in. Right. Um, so that took a bit of oh this is this is not like normal yeah um, and then you go no it's okay it's fine because there'll be a couple of them in there you get talking to them and it's, yeah. it's fine um, so that helped yeah but certainly on a two year place you make friends quick because within six months some of them are probably gone and there'll be another one coming in and so on amazing and and um, did your um, father have quite a long and sort of decorated career in the army then is that why he did so yeah, much traveling my father joined the army in 1939 when he was 14 as a drummer boy um with the irish guards wow um he was a sea cadet and his father said you're going into the army we know somebody so he joined the irish guards at 14 he served right away through world war Two. he served until 1976 as a regular officer um uh, he reached the rank of major, so he worked his way up to warrant officer class one uh, and then got commissioned, became a major. He then, from 76 to 86, he worked as a retired 
army officer in Manchester in the recruiting office. So he actually signed me on um, and signed a few other hundreds and thousands of people on during his career. So he finally finished with the army in 86 and had joined in 1939. And watched you... you and was, I joined... Was he still there yeah, while you joined? I joined in 76. He signed me on. Wow. I was at Ashford as an instructor and he came down to watch one of the pass-out parades that I was taking. That's amazing, isn't it? It was different, yeah. 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 Um, full circle. Did you? At what point did you think, this is the life for me, or was it just bred into you because well, of your lifestyle? it wasn't either. Um, I've always thought about this since I joined or since I've left and so on. Did I ever consciously decide to join the army? I'm not sure I consciously ever did. Right. But I'm also not sure I consciously ever thought that I was going to be doing anything else. Yeah. It was almost... My father never said, you're joining up. Yeah. My mother never said, you're going to join the army. I just think, you know, most children, they go through life and they go, oh, you want to be a fireman, you want to be a train driver and so on. I, I just always consciously or always remember playing at soldiers. Yeah. And then ended up joining yeah. Um. There, but there was. It wasn't a conscious decision of I must join. But I wonder if that's was, because you, if you remember as far back as you can remember, you were yeah, travelling. I, I think and, they might and be. And you'll have lived on bases and yes. seen. Yeah. You, you were part of that lifestyle. Yeah. From I the think very that beginning. probably was a huge part of it. That yeah. there was nothing else. Yeah. Um. And I went to a careers office in London, and they said. Have you, the the officer there said, "Have you had any military experience?" Uh, well, <laughs> well, no, other than you know schools. No, I haven't. So while I was still at school doing my A levels, and this is another reason I think my A levels suffered, they said, "Join the army reserves, or right. as it was then, the territorial army, right. to get some military experience." How so old I, were you at that point then? I was seventeen. So I joined the territorial army in seventy four, seventy five. So served about 18 months with them and then joined the regular army. Um, so it just gets you ready for it that It gets experience. me ready. Uh, it meant that I was doing camps and weekends and so on. And I'm sure I should have been sat at home revising for the A-levels. So again, I think the military didn't help my A-levels. Yeah. But it meant that when I joined the regular army, the first we had eight weeks of recruit training. The first four weeks of that, I'd already done it. Yeah. With the reserves, so I I had the easiest time yeah. ever. I mean, one of the lads in my intake wanted to leave, and the comment from the officer was, "Be like Sullivan, he's having a great time." And I'm thinking, <laughs> "Yeah, because I'd done it already." Yeah, um, it, it, it made it easy, and it meant that I could then help others. But it, it meant whereas others were sat at night reading and revising, I didn't need to revise it because I'd done it. Yeah, um, so it meant half of my recruit training was really easy. Yeah. That meant by the time the second half started, I'd already got enough that the second half wasn't going to be hard anyway. Yeah, you were ready for it. Yeah. I mean, I imagine for some people, as well as the study and training, there's the shock to the system, the the the, the culture shock of going from civilian life into well, this is not a job. This is not a job. Yes. You might think, oh, I like the sound of that. I like the sound of running around. I like the sound of being armed. I want to go and fight for my gun. All of the, the glamour and yeah. drama and excitement and danger that I can imagine really mm-hmm. attracts a lot of blokes. But then the reality of it is you don't you're not you don't come home. You don't no. you spend so much time there that you, yeah. you know you, you just it becomes who you are. I, I mean imagine. the reserves from that point of view was good preparation because I'd literally had two weeks away running around learning how to be a soldier. Yeah. So when I went to do that again for eight weeks, 
Well, I'd already done it, so yeah. I knew what it was going to be like. Yes. It was just going to be a longer version yes. of the two weeks. Yes, so it's fine. And you knew what what what. Yeah, I knew what end of the like. rifle was was which. Yeah. I knew how to make a bed. I knew how to make a bed block. Hospital corners. I knew how to iron my <laughs> kit. Yeah, yeah, I knew how to do hospital corners. I knew all of that. Yeah. So it was like, right, here's your kit. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing with this. Yeah. Um, to the point, you know, stupid things like we used to have a peak cap. Um, thankfully, we don't anymore. And they would teach you how to clean it. So you'd put some polish on it and you know, this little circles and everything else. And I'm sat there doing that for the first night and thought, no, I can't be doing with this anymore. <laughs> I'll do the old trick that I, I learned with the reserves. Shaving foam spray, wipe it over, it's done. Looks right. So I then just dusted it off. And about two weeks into the recruit training, the instructor comes in and your hat's on the end of the bed to be inspected. And he picked it up and he went, Sullivan, your hat. And I thought, he's going to he's gonna notice I haven't cleaned it. He said, no more polish on the peak, it's spot on. I hadn't polished it for about 10 days. All I'd done was dusted it off each day. Um, so it was just, okay. You knew yeah. all the tricks. Yeah. So it, it meant it was simple. And it, it did mean, therefore, you got a bit more time to help somebody who was struggling a bit more yeah. to just go, right, come here. You can't iron those. I'll iron them for you because yeah. you're ironing about 15 creases in them when you should only have one. Yeah. I'll iron those and you do that. Yeah. yeah. So I spent a bit of time in the Air Cadets, a lot of years yep. in the Air Cadets. Um, and... So it interests me to talk a bit about drill and about uniform and that sort of thing, if you're happy to yeah, do that. Because yeah. there was, I really enjoyed it. And I don't, I still can't quite put my finger on what that was about, about, yeah, you know, layer of polish, yep. tiny amount of water, layer of polish, get them looking shiny, one crease, tight hospital corners, drill in time, everything yep. where it's meant to be. There's something is is hard to define about the satisfaction of things being just so isn't there i don't know what that yeah. is is that well, you, why why is drill so important why right. is uniform well, so important i joined the the intelligence corps i joined a contradiction in terms it's an oxymoron military intelligence um <laughs> And my first couple of years, and I, I went through my recruit training, and my first couple of years I went to Northern Ireland. I then got lucky enough, I got to Cyprus, and I went to Aldershot, and I was working in Aldershot, and I was doing security. And I'd always wanted to go back to be an instructor at the depot. And I asked, and they sent me on the drill course. I said, I want to be a drill instructor. Sent me on the drill course. And you say, what is, why is drill? To, there is so much emphasis on drill. You open the drill manual, and the first lines in the drill manual are, drill is the basis of all teamwork. Mm. Well, the military is based around working together as a team. Yeah. So drill is the start of that. I see. It's, it's the, the fact that you all get together with this common aim of, look, this may be stupid, but we're all going to be doing this together. And when we get it right, oh, are we on point? Yeah. Because we've got it right and we all go, ooh, you stand a little taller, you yeah. feel a little prouder. And it's that teamwork yeah. straight away. You're building teams and you're building a team in a nice environment because you're just on a drill square, you're just marching around. Yeah. You're not getting muddy and dirty. and yeah. You're building that teamwork so that you can then take that teamwork somewhere else and it can get muddy because it's still working as a team. Yeah. It's also um, within the same drill manual. It says it's the base of teamwork and the introduction of discipline to react to a word. So when you shout turn, you all turn. Yeah. So that means when you're in the middle of a wood and somebody is opening fire on you and you shout down, Everybody you goes. go down. Instead of turning around and going, what do you mean? You do it automatically. So you're getting used to instantaneously obedient, obeying a command yeah. whilst working together as a team. Um, and drill is 
exactly that. Now, the intelligence corps that I was part of don't do drill. We, we are not in the military. I mean, I joined the intelligence corps, and in my 22 years, half my time, I wasn't in uniform. I was in a suit or a jacket and tie and things like this. So we, you know, we, ne- we do a lot more uniform now right. than, than certainly when I, I was in. What, what, so what me doing drill was like, you you like this stuff? <laughs> yeah. You're in the intelligence corps. Yeah. Why, why do you like this? And but everyone must have done it, presumably. Oh, yeah. So we, some, you all some have to do it in recruit it. training. Yeah. And you all have to do it as part of a promotion course. Yes. But I was one of those weird ones that in the <laughs> with my hat on where I actually quite liked doing yeah, it. I quite um, Because it. I was good at it. Yeah. Um, so it was an oddity. But it is that teamwork. And you saw that when you were getting people ready for parades you could see them spot on. I mean, it's that basic psychological thing of if they get them right, they're really good. We had a recruit intake, and they would all get issued the kit and everything else, and it's fine. This one recruit intake worked so well together that one morning they'd all gone out and they'd all bought drill boots, ammunition boots with 13 studs in them, the whole intake. They didn't have to because they had boots, but they'd all bought them so they could sound better (laughs) and they could sound together. And we brought them up, and it was like, Wow. They've all got them. Yeah. And it was that teamwork of they want to work together. Yeah. This is they they are just gonna do whatever we need, they will do and more. It's like a, a shared subconscious. It is a, exactly a, that. I imagine it like, you know, when you see a group of birds all take off at the same time in the same direction and yeah, you know it's, it's, it works it's without words. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's that's, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think you're right, with the air cadets and so on and with the cadets, because I, I spent some time with the army cadets they like that drill because it gives them that sense of purpose that sense yeah. of discipline that sense of teamwork yeah straight away yeah um, and it's almost a, it's almost a dance if oh you, yeah it is the, 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 when it gets when you watch a dance yeah it is group on in perfect time yeah that's you, when it looks it's yeah. absolute best you watch troop in the color yeah um each oh, yeah. year it is a dance choreographed yeah. by the Sarp Major yeah. and gone in slow and quick and everything else and they're turning but they all turn together and they all yeah. stop together and they move together oh. all the knees at the same height and it is it's, it's like watching Strictly watch. Come Dancing yeah. for the military yeah well we went to the Edinburgh Tattoo and right. that just you know that's just hours of it look, yeah. on this ridiculous scale it just shows it can be scaled up once people oh, yeah. are, are, are focused it they're one tiny cog in a huge wheel. And I suppose that kind of shows, that kind of represents the army in some well, way, doesn't it? Everybody is important, nobody forgotten, but yeah, also but a very small part yeah, of a much bigger... You, one person gets it wrong, yeah. it'll stand out. Yeah. You all get it right. I mean, the perfect one of that is one of the rehearsals, and I know it's jumping ahead, one of the rehearsals we did for the coronation yes. was at an RAF base, RAF Odium. And that was the first time you realised how big it was because it was an RAF base. Um, it was a you could use the runways. So you had a massive space. Um, so massive space and massive open space, which you will never see in London because of all the buildings. And we were stood right at the back of this whole parade, and there was like four and a half to five thousand blokes on parade. And you looked across the airfield, and all you could see was all these blokes lined up, and somebody shouted, and they all stepped off together. And you thought, this is quite big, this. Yeah. And again, that one of them had made, messed up. You would have spotted it, it but there were five thousand all going just, together. Just from an audio perspective, it takes longer for the orders to reach you at the back. No, because no, because what they did for the coronation, they cued the bands. Right. Um, all the drummers, all the bass drummers who keep the beat, were cued with an earpiece Brilliant. to a timer. Incredible. So that when they shouted "Quick March," 
all the bass drummers went together. So every band was playing the same piece of music at the same time. Yeah. So not, not normally on big parades, the first half will be in one step, the second half and so on. Yeah. This lot, they were all in the same step because all the bands kicked off together. That's awesome. It's really clever. Yeah. Um, and it's because of modern technology, I mean, but it worked a treat. Even with modern technology, organising something at that sort of scale, yeah, I just... Back I, to that choreography. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're definitely, definitely going to talk yeah. about the coronation. But... Um, but but let's talk, we were talking a bit, you mentioned a few of the places you'd been and a few of the jobs that you'd done yes. while you were in. So if we can talk about, you said military intelligence. You yes. hear that a lot. Um, what is it that you were doing? You know, what right. can you tell us? My bit? trade had two bits to it. Um, I was an operator intelligence and security. Right. So I could either do an intelligence posting yeah. or a security posting. The intelligence postings, basically you're looking to try and, Tell the commander what's over the hill yeah. coming at him. I see. So on an exercise, you'd be play. We would play the enemy. Um, obviously, when I was there, it was a cold war, so we were playing the Warsaw Pact. So we would be the Warsaw Pact. So we'd be telling the commander, right, this is coming over, this is coming over, or if you see this, it'll be a combat indicator that that's coming over the hill at you, or they're coming to the left or the right or wherever. So you were making so you'd, predictions and, you'd brief and practicing the command. Yeah. potential yeah. attacks. Yes, you say to him, yeah. if, if, if you see this piece of equipment, it's what you would call a signature equipment yeah. for a headquarters of this type of unit, which means you're going to be facing this. And you were getting that information from what? Um, we had um, books of Warsaw Pact tactics, yeah. um, books of... Of recognition equipment so the big thing they used to teach in in the cold war in germany uh, for the uk forces and the american forces and so on was recognition of of warsaw pact equipment so they knew if they could recognize a tank or a gun yeah. or so on it was what type of tank what type of gun and so on yeah. so that's what we did on the intelligence side yeah. brief the commander so that he could take what he had and put it in the right place yeah because even back in the cold war the british military wasn't as big as the the yeah. Warsaw Pact. So we had to put whatever we did have in the right place. Of course, yeah. Um, more so now because we've got even less. Yeah. Um, so but I guess technology will be picked up a lot, will it? What as regards being able to recognise the well, stuff? Well, yeah, and AI and of the are they are they as swanky as you imagine they should be? Aren't the military always decades yeah, ahead they're of normally, the rest of us? Yeah. The problem is you've still got to put a bloke on the ground at some point. Of course, yeah. And that we don't seem to have at the moment. We don't have yeah. that much. Right. Um, I mean, was it somebody was telling me that within the next two years, maybe less, Switzerland, which is a neutral country, will have more tanks than the British Army do. Wow. Is and this... when you consider that we're supposedly part of NATO, that's quite a telling statement. But yeah, so the intelligence was making the commander, yeah. giving the commander the best information he could so he knew where to put his forces. Yeah. The security side of it was stopping the people over the hill, finding out what we were doing. <laughs> All right. So part of the security role was to stop them finding it. Um, so that was making sure that if we left a location, we didn't leave documents behind. Yeah. Um, they were all burnt or shredded or taken with us and so on. Um, if we had a camp, we made sure the camp had the right si right height fence, the right sort of security doors on the armories. Yeah. The inspections were done. The classified documents were looked after. And then if things got missing, we then had to investigate to find out 
we never wanted to find out who did it. It was more a case of how did something happen yeah. so that we can then prevent that happening again. Yeah, and where's so, it gone? Has it yeah, landed in if, you've lost, if you've lost a document, that's really bad. Yeah. But what we really want to know is how did that happen yeah. so we can stop it happening the next time? Yeah. When we do that, we're probably going to find out who did it. Yeah. But our big concern is how. So you were investigators, aren't Yeah, we were investigators. Respect. Well, we were we were investigators, uh, advisors. So we would come yeah. into the commander and say, right, what do you need to look at? You need to protect this. Yeah. Our advice is the best way to protect this is here, 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 and here. Yeah. Right, go ahead. Um, uh, or come into a unit and say, right, what are you worried about? You've just arrived in a new area. Yeah. You don't know the area. We will now brief you on what the area is, what the concerns to have, and so on. Yeah. Um, and then that would be the security side of it was the one I tended to do more. Yeah. After I'd been at our depot teaching for three and a half years as the recruit instructor, where I taught uh, drill, um, then nuclear, biological and chemical warfare, and then field craft and tactics, whenever I was posted from then onwards, predominantly security tours, although one intelligence tour in Northern Ireland, I was also doing training. Yeah. Because I'd done all of that at the depot, it was like, well, you're an obvious trainer, so yeah. you're doing training as well. And did you, did you were you happy with that? Because presumably, oh, yeah. when yeah, you're, I mean, operation, you're in the thick of it, and all of a sudden, you've got all the knowledge that you need to then be the one telling everybody else how to do it. Yeah, I mean, the training thing was, you know, we didn't have that many people going through our training depot as instructors. Yeah. So therefore, it was almost a given yeah. that wherever you went after this, you were going to be using using those training skills to train. Yeah, and you had the qualifications to be able to take them and so on. Um, were you still getting involved in anything in the oh, excitement yeah, of yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, my, my first posting after the depot, I went to Hong Kong. So yeah. I'd done Cyprus as a young corporal in an intelligence unit. Um, I did older shot security where... We managed to um, investigate some lost documents and blamed or found the person who'd done it was actually already dead. And therefore, the reason they, the documents were missing was because he died. He'd shredded the documents, uh. correctly destroyed them, died before he could cross them out of the documents book. So therefore, they still on paper existed because yeah. they weren't crossed off. But we could prove that he had destroyed them. You just it was one they of those were important accidents. documents, yeah. though, were they? No, they were just normal classified documents. So did that. I then went to Ashford for three and a half years. My posting after that was Hong Kong, where I ran a vetting unit looking at soldiers wanted to marry local uh, civilians, like Chinese, Filipinos, and so on, yeah. and also vetting of local military personnel. Um, I then took over as the company sergeant major there, and I was the security officer there in Hong Kong. But at the same time, I was also doing the training. So I would do their annual training tests. I would take them on the ranges. Um, I did a couple of drill parades because, well, you're a drill instructor. You're doing that. Um, so were you living a, you were carrying out a similar role and living a similar life than you, than you like you would on a on a uh, an army base over here. Oh yeah, it was yeah. just it was yeah, just, it was just in Hong a Kong. Different place. Yeah, right. It was just in Hong Kong. Was there much work with those countries while you were in them? Um, yeah, crossover. with Hong Kong, yeah, because we had, certainly on the vetting side, I liaised with the Royal Hong Kong Police yeah. and worked with the Royal Hong Kong Police quite right. a lot. Um, once I was the company sergeant major and the security officer, less with the Hong Kong Police, more with the military police in there. Right. Um, my last month or so in Hong Kong, I was doing security for the Prince of Wales visit to Hong Kong 
and also preparing soldiers for a, the Remembrance Sunday parade. So I was doing security overnight and then a parade rehearsal in the morning. Wow. Um, so, so I was doing so a lot of both things at the same wearing time. Wearing multiple hats. And I then went to Northern Ireland, back to doing intelligence, um, liaising with um, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So I was working with the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So back to intelligence and liaison. Did that for two and a half years. What, years, what year was um, that? that? My first tour in Northern Ireland was 77 to 79. My second tour was 1990 to mid to late 92. Right. So it was just over two two years. And you've seen, so you've seen it at two very different... Dramatically different, yeah. but also very much, very much the same, right. but also different insofar as um, there was much more... By 92, there was still lots of terrorist activity, yeah. but it was different types and so on. Yeah. And also, you're seeing it from a different angle because I was doing a different job. Yeah. I then left Northern Ireland and I went to a security section in Nottingham where I ran the section and we looked after the whole of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire and Leicestershire and so on where we were doing security for all the military units, reserve units, cadet units and so on. Um, the big change there from when I was in Aldershot was by then we were looking much more with the reserves as a potential threat from republicanism in northern ireland yeah. whereas in 76 or when i was at an older shot it was just the regular units yeah. by 90s it was more the reserve units as well because yeah. they could be perceived as a potential threat so we did more work there i then got promoted and i went to germany where i was doing counterintelligence um with a deployable nato headquarters and I, from there, I managed to get deployed to Bosnia for six months wow. um, with NATO. So the UN had finished by then. NATO had arrived to enforce the peace, and we arrived to enforce the peace, and we did six months there. So you take a HQ, a NATO HQ, yep. with you. Yeah, the whole of the NATO headquarters moves. By this point, what rank are you then? You... I was then a warrant officer class one. Right, wow. So my, when I joined the army, um, did I have any career ambition? My career ambition probably was to make sergeant. Yeah. You know, get three tapes on my arm, happy days. Yeah. Um, so I joined, I got sergeant, I was at Ashford teaching recruits, and I thought, right, what do I want to do next? And I wanted to go to Hong Kong, so I went to Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, the jobs fell right, and I picked up my W02. And when I picked up my W02, I thought, right, if I can make W01, warrant officer class one, that will do me. At the time in the intelligence corps, there were only 14 W01s in the core wow. there's now a lot more yeah. um but there were 14 so when i picked it up when i was in nottingham and i picked it up so like two weeks before i was due to go to germany i was one of the 14 and i thought yeah this is it now i've got Peaked. this <laughs> now a lot of the intelligence corps are commissioned from the ranks right and that was a potential for me but i spoke to a few people at the time who had taken a commission and weren't happy yeah. um, because they'd gone from being at the top to being now just part of the, the mainstream again. So I thought, no, don't do that. Stick as a warrant officer class one yeah. and then leave while still having enjoyed yourself. Because I, I saw people coming towards the end of the time who were leaving unhappy. Right. And of course, if you leave unhappy, any interview you go to in civil life, you're going to look unhappy. You're going to sound unhappy. So I thought, if I leave and I'm still enjoying it... yeah. Hopefully that will carry through to my yeah. civilian life. So I did the last, I did four years as a warrant officer class one, left the army in 1998. Um, 
I found it really interesting. Um, th- yeah, the idea that you can be promoted through the ranks, and even though, for, for for listeners who don't know, the idea of going from a non-commissioned officer to a commissioned officer is like any other promotion. It's a, a an uptick in oh, yeah. responsibility, in number of people yep. that you 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 have command over, in pay, uh, in res- presumably in respect generally, but actually from a from from inside the organisation, what you you see yourself as then landing in a a new yeah. pool at the bottom end of the spectrum do you yeah sometimes sometimes yeah. i mean to, it, you know you're going from being the top of a big of a pool yeah. to being back to the bottom to work your way up in yeah. the same way as you start at primary school you get to 11 you're the top of the primary school then you yes. go to secondary school and start I the bottom see. and go okay. right to the top and then you go to university and start the bottom and then go to the third year yeah. and start so it's it, it's very much like that i see it's not a bad thing. I mean, a f- very good friend of mine has just finished his army career. He did 37 years in the army. Wow. He was one of my v- recruits in my last intake Yeah. at Ashford. Went all the way through, served with me in Bosnia um, as a staff sergeant, served with me when he was in Nottingham and I was in York for my last two years. Got his commission and he's just retired last month as a lieutenant colonel. Wow. Had a great time. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. So I'm... Um, it was just from my point of view. I looked at it and thought, no. Yeah, and you'd um, already others, exceeded what yeah, your goals were I wanted, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Others, it, it's the right move and so on. And for Andy, it certainly was. For me, I thought, no, I'll leave. Yeah. Still enjoy myself. Yeah. Um, that- and certainly my last two years in York, uh, I had a great time. Absolutely great time. And thought, right, yep, yeah, it's time. I knew it was time to leave when I was interviewing a young Lance Corporal who was just arrived in training, uh, just arrived from training. And he'd gone through, he joined the army. Uh, sorry, he'd been born, joined, gone through school, joined the army, done his initial recruit training, done his trade training of four to six months, come to my first posting, and he'd done all of that whilst I'd still been in the army. And I just thought, no, it is definitely time for me to leave. Yeah. If I've got a soldier arriving who was born after I joined... yeah. And has gone through all of yeah. It's now time for me to go. Let the youngsters have a bash, yeah. and so leave. Okay, so you've been. Oh, I mean, it sounds like you've been to Hong Kong as a child. You went to Hong Kong yep. as an adult. Yes, you've been in Northern Ireland through some of the most, you know, through the troubles, through some the of the fun most. Times. Diff- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you've been to Cyprus. You've been to Bosnia. You know what? Can you tell us sort of, without going into too much detail, um, what? what it was like, what have you seen, how difficult was that for someone to, to sort of experience all of that uh, violence and combat? And, well, um... we're in a weird situation in the intelligence corps. Um, you do see it and yeah. you don't see it and so on. Uh, my first tour in Northern Ireland, I was based in the main army headquarters camp in Lisbon. Yeah. Um, so you could go down into the local town, which was a largely uh, Protestant town, so it was safe and all the rest of it, yeah. or safe in inverted commas, yeah. um, as long as you kept your wits about you. Um, and I worked in that that barracks, yeah. lived and worked in the barracks. I see. And the only time I went out was going downtown into Lisbon, a few beers, maybe into Belfast for a bit of shopping, Yeah. and that was it. My second tour, I lived in that same barracks, but I worked at the main police headquarters in Knock, Right. So I used to drive across um, Belfast each day to work. So I was commuting to work and back. Um, I, that was probably one of my best tours because I worked with some of the most professional people in the world. Right. Uh, the Royal Officer Constabulary um, 
were absolutely superb. The detectives that I worked with uh, were unbelievably good. Um, did you see much? Uh, no, you, you saw the odd bit on the yeah. the, the periphery more yeah. than anything else. I mean, you could go for a drive around Northern Ireland. The problem is that people saw, people in the United Kingdom, the mainland, um, would watch television and they would see a bomb going off in Northern yeah. Ireland. What they didn't see was the fact that that bomb had gone off in Belfast or, yeah. or Portadown or wherever, but yeah. the rest of Northern Ireland was fine. Was I could go life. for a drive in Northern Ireland um, and often did for four or five hours, yeah. stop for lunch and come back. You felt safe. You would not see anything at all. Yeah. So the problem is that because one incident happens, that's when people see the television. Yeah. What they don't see is all the normal day-to-day life carrying yeah. on around it. Of course not. Um, and but, but I would imagine, you know, I suppose in, in my head, I imagine that being out there um, in uniform or, or even not in uniform, but 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 working for um, the army, that you would be at a higher risk than the average person. You, and you would... Potentially you could be. Yeah. Um, we tended to be able to um, have a weapon with us at all times, when, even when we were in civilian clothes. Yeah. Um, but n- a lot of the time you didn't carry it because of where you were going to. You just thought, it's just I too much it. hassle. Just yeah. it, It's just getting in. Other places you would carry it a, a lot more, depending on yeah. where you were going to. Yeah. Um, so it, it was very much, if you knew where you were going, you yeah. could make a, an assessment of, yeah. did you need to take something to protect yourself with if you did then you did if you didn't you didn't um most of my time on that second tour and on the first one was in civilian clothes yeah about the only time i wore uniform was when i was doing military training so we were going down to an army barracks to do ranges um to do some uh preparation training and so on yeah um before we move on from from your career you mentioned a few other bits that you'd you'd done while there, which sounded fascinating. Um, nuclear and biological yes. warfare tactics or something no, like that, yeah. was it? <laughs> it, it? When I initially started training and when I was an instructor, it was called NBC, Nuclear, Biological and Chemical Defence. Yeah. Because we don't, in the British military, we don't have an offensive capability, yeah. but we need to do defensive training. Yeah. So this was teaching soldiers how to wear the suit, yeah. the respirator, um, and so on, how to live in it, how to operate it in yeah. it, what drills to do to make sure that you're safe, yeah. and decontamination, all of that sort of stuff. And everybody it, needs to know this. Everybody they? in the military has to know it. Right. Um, and it's tested annually. Right. By the time I finished my time, it had changed from nuclear, biological and chemical to CBRN. So it's chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear because they included, the, they added those in. Yeah. Um, the training was the same. Yeah. Um, the equipment had changed slightly. We changed from uh, we changed the respirator um, during my time in the regular army, uh, an improved version. Yeah. We changed the suits, an imp- slightly improved version. Um, and then when I went into the reserves, they changed the respirator again right. um, for another improved version. Yeah. And my role was to teach people how to use it and how to operate it on, in it, and how to test to make sure the equipment worked. So that so you could so that they could still be functional even yes. in the middle of an attack yeah. of some kind. Yeah. So right. we you'd use uh, a testing facility. So you'd put some CS gas in there. They'd go in with the the kit on, 
do you feel any CS gas? No. Well, there is some in here, so you know the kit's working. Right. Um, and then certainly as a recruit, you then had to be exposed to CS. Yeah. The idea was that they would let you have some CS so that you knew, one, yeah. when you were wearing your kit, you couldn't smell the CS, so yeah. you know the kit's working. Two, you know what CS is if you ever do feel it. Yeah. And three, you know that it doesn't last for very long. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I was one of the instructors for those. Right. So it sounds like you accumulated a lot of knowledge and you spent a lot of time protecting people a lot of throughout stuff. your career. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you then, did you did you ever feel unsafe? Did you ever feel at risk? Were you ever in any situations where, you know, you feared for your own safety? Um, or did you feel that it was quite a secure sort um, of no, environment? No, the, the only time, not unsafe, the only time I thought, oh, hello, um, we were in Bosnia, we'd had, it was New Year's Eve, and we'd um, had a few beers to celebrate New Year's <laughs> Eve. Um, this was n- December 95, 1st of January 96. And we were watching cele- Celebratory Fire. Yeah. Because over there, they like firing into the air. and lots of fires, rounds going off and everything else. And we were watching these and they were going from both sides, past us and so on. And it was lovely. And then some of them hit the wall beside us and thought, ah, oh, now they're direct firing. So we, we went back indoors and carried on drinking. We woke up New Year's Day. Um, most of us had some serious hangovers because the local beer was not that brilliant. It'd be a good day to attack that, oh, wouldn't it? <laughs> perfect. Um, so we had to go out and do a job. So we went out to do the job, yeah. did the job, and we were on the way home, and I had an American soldier working with me, had a multinational team, had an American, a Canadian, French-Canadian, uh, an American, um, a Greek interpreter, um, a couple of Brits, and so on. We were driving back in in two Land Rovers, and a, what was... A 12.7 heavy machine gun, um, a Russian machine gun called a Dushka, um, opened up on us. Well, he didn't open up on us. He fired across from the distance. We think it was a drunk who was just firing... To scare you a bit. Anything. Oh, no, he was just firing oh, stuff right. that was moving. And these rounds, we heard them and saw them strike something. The American was driving because the American had always wanted to drive a Jeep. Yeah. And he'd never driven a land, an army Land Rover. So he got a chance to drive an army Land Rover. And he said, was that for us? And I went, yes, put your foot down. So we put the foot down. We were right near the camp anyway yeah. and drove in the camp. The one good thing about that was it cleared everybody's hangover straight away. Yeah. <laughs> was he going to hit us? The only way he would have hit us was by accident because yeah. he was as, he was drunk. But that was the only time we just thought, oh, that, yeah, that, yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but no, other than that, I think your training works really well yeah. to prepare you. So if something happens, you instantaneously know what you've got to do. Yeah. So do you feel concerned? Yeah, there's always, you're thinking, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. But it's fine because we know what we've got to do yeah. if something happens. The importance of, yeah, so of training. Training, training yeah. kicks in and it's, it, it yeah. works automatically. Um, and so, thank you. Um, yep. And so you... Your final couple of years is in York. At Strensel, did you say? Yep. Um, no, my final two years was in York in Infall Barracks. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. with the regular army. Um, while I was there, it was obviously, what are you going to do when you leave the army? Most of the people in my cap badge in the intelligence corps go into security. Right. Um, working for security companies, working in security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought, no, I, w- I want to do something completely different. Um I'll keep that on the back burner because I can always go back to that. Yeah. Um, I want to be a personal fitness trainer. Right. Because I'd started to get into my fitness whilst I was at Ashford in Kent. Before then, I'd done the annual fitness requirements for the military 
and nothing else. So what, they have like a bleep test sort of thing? No, well, when I was, certainly when I got to Ashford, the military tests were, it was a mile and a half in 15 minutes in boots. Yeah. And then a mile as a squad, and then a mile and a half in boots, best effort uh, as an individual. And the mile and a half... When you were under 30, was 10 and a half minutes. Right. Once you were 30 and over, it was 11 minutes, okay. and you got older, etc., etc. I see. So I could do that, yeah. and there was also a 10-miler. Um, and I could do that, and that was fine. But I was all right. I, could just, I was comfortably doing that, but yeah. nothing further. I got to Ashford, and the instructors there, when I was a recruit, the instructors would watch you as you went out running with the PTI. And yeah. the physical training instructor would take you out and the instructors would sit back in the office watch you go out running. I got there as an instructor and quite rightly they said, look, we get the top 2% of the British Army, of soldiers joining the British Army because of their intelligence level or academic levels and so on. We've got to be doing it with them. Right. You know, we can't be sat down no. in an office watch because there's no respect. So yeah. we then went out with them. So we had to do the same physical fitness with right. them. So I did a lot more running, a lot more weighted marches and so on with them. How old were you at this point? I was um, I was under 30 because I was 30 yeah. when I got to Hong Kong. Right. So I would have been in 26, 27. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I started getting into the fitness then. Right. And then from then onwards, carried on with that fitness. Um, I did my first ever marathon while I was in Hong Kong. I did my first ever half marathon while I was in Hong Kong. Um, I then, while I was in Northern Ireland, because I thought, well, I better, I've got to have a reason for keeping fit in Northern Ireland. So I did another marathon in Hong, while I was in there. And from then onwards, I was doing one or two marathons a year, doing stuff, keeping fit. So when it came to the end of my military career, I'd done a, a UK athletics coaching course with the army. Right. Um, and thought, what am I going to, I know, I'll, I'll go be a personal trainer. So I went and did a personal training qualification um, as part of my resettlement training with the army. So the army paid for the course. Are they quite good like that as you come to the end of your career? Depending on how long you've done in, if you've done 12 years or more, they will help you with um, briefings on how to write CVs, um, interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Because obviously in the military, you don't have to write a CV. You get posted somewhere else. So they help you with all of that. Um, They'll help you towards um, a course that you want to do that might help you with your career plans. Um, so, yes, they're, they're very good, good from that side That's of it. Really good. Um, the career transition people are really good. And since they've now got things like LinkedIn, yeah. it's got even better because there's now a – I mean, there's always been a massive ex-military community out in the world. Right. Well, now, through LinkedIn, that ex-military community is really kicking in, helping people leave to get employment and so on. So there's like a community of people that you can – Massive. Opportunities yeah, are easier to massive. come across. I mean, Amazing. it's the age-old story that – and as you've already said, the military isn't a, a, a job. It's yeah. a career. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. Well, when you come out, the only people who know what that lifestyle and career was like were those who were in. Yeah. So they can help you settle in, settle back in discipline, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one of the things we wanted to try, they've been trying to change, is you leave the army um, and you resettle and then you join civilian. We're saying it should be more of a transition. Right. Because you're not changing. Gradual. You're still the same. Right. You should transition from military to civilian because you're still the same person. You're just transitioning from one career to another. Yeah. And most people, if they do 22 years, come out when you're 40. So you need to do another job. Yeah. So I was going to go into personal fitness training, um, which is unusual, as I say, for my cat badge. So I did that course. At the same time, 
a university, Anglia Polytechnic University as it was then, um, now John Ruskin, were advertising in a, a military Pathfinder magazine, which is for people leaving the army, mm-hmm. saying anybody who's an ex-SART major, um, an ex quarterback and so on, would like to civilianise their management qualifications, come and see us. We will ex- we will accept the fact that your military career is equivalent to an undergraduate degree. We'll put you on a postgraduate programme. So I was doing that with them. So I did a postgraduate certificate in management, six modules, a postgraduate diploma in management, six modules, and I then did a master's by dissertation, uh, master's by research, um, to get an MSc. So I was doing all of that whilst doing the PT stuff. So is this because you wanted to keep your options open or did you already have an idea of what you No, wanted to... I wanted to keep my options open. Wow. And I thought, well, they're doing they're offering me this postgraduate yeah. stuff for free. Yeah. Well, that's a no brainer. It's a free yeah. course. I'm gonna do it. But then you've got the fitness side, you've got the, the all of you passed as a trainer, yeah. and now you've got management yeah. experience. Well, the training. trainer side was one of the reasons why I thought personal trainer, because yeah. well I know I know I can already train, so I can yeah. go and do that. And the PT side of it was becoming it was actually quite easy right um because being a personal trainer if you want to get somebody fitter all you have to do is make them run faster or lift more <laughs> um but when i first got out of the military i didn't do personal training yeah. because the problem with establishing yourself you've got to establish yourself yeah and i couldn't do i was working in a gym um and they were paying me about four to five thousand pound a year and i i'd stuck that for about a month and a half and then thought no yeah. you can poke this where the sun don't shine what then the, you were expected to try and bring i in was all the f- no no i was cleaning gym equipment and so on I see, but i, I right. left it because the management in there was appallingly oh, bad see. and they couldn't they couldn't organize a party in a brewery <laughs> and they were it was abundantly clear that yeah. so i left so i did a year with a management training company here in york mm-hmm. um which no longer exists Whilst I was doing my management course, and I was still doing a bit of gym instruction on the side, um, I then did a short-term contract with Group Force Security, um, looking after, they they were doing some choopy work, so I was helping them out with that, with recruiting, and I then thought, no, hold on, I left the military to be a PT, so I better start doing it. Um, So I started doing personal training properly, got myself established, I was working in a gym in York, doing some PT work, doing a bit more of the sports therapy because that was more fun because that's more a case of, well, what's wrong and why are we keeping having the same injury? What's going on? What can we do to fix it? It was more interesting. The so sports it was, therapy it was side sort of, of um, troubleshooting rather yeah. than just fitness. It was, yeah. You've, you've got Somebody a bad comes knee. in and says, I've got a bad knee. Well, when have you? I've had it four times before. Right. So one, let's fix yeah. what we the problem, yeah. and then two, let's look at why you keep having the same problem because yeah. something's wrong somewhere. So strengthening exercises. Yeah. Stuff that's, look at the gait analysis, yeah. etc. So while I was doing all of this, I was part of a running club in York, and a mate of mine from the running club um, was a lecturer at York St John University, and he grabbed me one day and he said, "Look," he said, "You you work as a personal trainer?" I said, "Yes, I do." He said, we've got a problem. We've got a member of staff missing. He's off long-term sick. Could you come in? He said, "You with your clients, you talk about smoking, drinking, exercise, you know, leisure time, physical activity, all that. I said, yeah, yeah, I do all of that. I said, um, I've done some work. I was working in a, a, low, a council gym at the time, and we'd done some work with them on um, getting people into exercise who didn't normally do it. So how to get them into a gym when they didn't want to, or they were scared of gyms. Yeah. Doing time management, goal setting, all of that sort of good stuff. Yeah. He said, so you do all of that? I said, yeah, I've done all that. He said, could you come in and teach a module for us? 
He said, the lectures notes are already written. Okay. And I said, yes, I can teach it. He said, you haven't seen them yet. I said, I'm ex-military. Yeah. And the one thing about the ex-military, you know, is that they can just stand up and deliver stuff. Yeah. Because the ex-military are really confident about, well, yeah, give me a lesson. Give me five minutes and I'll teach that yeah. lesson. As long as Have the you ever taught it before? Right. If you ever taught it before, no, but I can teach it. And if yeah. you're telling me the lecture notes are already there, I can deliver it. Right. So I delivered that module. At the end of that, they said, look, that's gone really well. Would you like a job here at York St. John for two and a half days a week? And I went, yeah, I'll take it. Two and a half days a week. Yeah. yeah. Still they said, do your PT they said um, you can still do your PT and the other stuff. They said, there is one problem. I said, what? They said, you don't have an undergraduate degree. I said, no, I don't. They said, but you're busy studying to complete a master's. Yes, I am. Right. We will accept, that university's accepted your army career as equivalent to an undergraduate degree. We will do the same. Because we Incredible. have to, because you, yeah. you can't have two universities doing different. Yeah. But you must complete your masters to be able to teach at York St John. I said, "Well, I'm going to complete it." So I've completed my masters, submitted this my in your spare time. Then yeah. how are you? Oh, I oh, see. Yeah. Right. So I submitted my dissertation. Yeah. Got my masters degree. Started working at York St John for two and a half <laughs> days a week, whilst doing the PT two and a half days a week, and I'd done that. And I was teaching on the BA program. Yeah. So I was teaching on coaching. Yeah. So I was coaching running, coaching athletics, um, doing all the soft skills, uh, coaching styles, et cetera, et cetera. And then they re they were reorganizing the degree programs at York St. John and they were for they were provide they were gonna produce instead of just a sports science degree, yeah. they wanted to produce an injury rehab degree. Right. And they said, Right, we need three modules. They said we need an, an anatomy module, because bizarrely they taught sports science at York St. John, but they never taught anatomy which I never understood how they could manage to do it, but yeah, they did. Right. So they said, we need an anatomy module at level one, a massage module at level two, and an exercise module at level three. Who we got who does massage? Mark, you do massage, don't you? Uh, yes. Write these three modules. You're now teaching on the sports science degree. Okay. <laughs> so, so massage was part of your your PT and sports yeah, therapy training, sports thera Well, sports oh, therapy right. includes massage. So I said, right, okay, I'm now teaching that then. So I changed <laughs> from teaching BA to teaching BSC and ended up teaching anatomy in the first year, um, sports massage the second year, and then exercise into the third year and did that for the remainder of my time at York St. John. Which was how long? Uh, I started there in 2004. Um and I finished in 2016, 2017. Wow. And um, all from a chance, chance of there's a bloke who's off sick. Can you come in and teach? How yeah. incredible. What a remarkable yeah. career. But also weird because if I hadn't done the master's degree, I wouldn't have been able to get the job anyway. Yes. Because I don't have an undergraduate yeah, degree. Yeah, so you couldn't lecture without that qualification. Yeah, had, when I joined... You've got to be at least as clued up as the people well, you teach. Well, I, when I joined... Every academic had to have a master's degree to lecture on undergraduate. I see, yeah. Now, you've got to have a PhD to lecture on the undergraduate. Right. So there's been they this massive trade inflation right. as regards qualifications in HE, yeah. which I think in some areas is a mistake because it means that you're not getting people necessarily who are current in practice yeah. Because they've spent so long in academia to get a PhD, they, they've missed out on it. Um, I was lucky. I came in when they were still, no, you, you need to have one level up from yeah. what you're teaching. Yeah. Um, so if you're teaching on a master's degree, yes, you do need a PhD. But I was teaching on an undergraduate, so you must have a master's. So I did wow. it that way. Um, so, yeah, so I did that. Um, so I was there, for, yeah, 16 years. And as it happened, the first year I was teaching there, 2004, 
um, that's when I went away and did the TV series. Um, did that. Tell me a bit. Well, we'll come back to the TV yeah, series. Yeah, come Sorry, back yeah. to that. Okay. So, yeah, so I did the time at university, finished it 2016, 2017. Yeah. Um, I was... I was planning to finish anyway. Yeah. I thought I, I've got a third. I had a cohort like a brilliant recruit intake. Yeah. Some cohorts really worked together. Others didn't. Right. Um, we used to have good intakes at, at my training depot and bad intakes. Yeah. Great individuals, yeah. but as a group, good or bad. I see. Well, we had this cohort um, at York St. John who were really good yeah. they worked together well there were some How individuals many? in there where you thought probably not there but the cohort as a, as a whole were really good and how many people um, on the sports injury program there was probably about 50 right. maybe maybe 60 yeah. and, and they were really good intake so i thought if i see them through their third year then i can leave right um and as it happened there was a severance system happening um i found out about it I took that, so I left a year early. So That's I left it. them as they were starting into their third year right. rather than finishing. Yeah. Um, but it, it was the right time for me to go. Of course. Um, yeah. Luckily, they said, can Sullivan come back for our graduation? Um, <laughs> I got invited back. So I came back for their graduation the following November anyway. So I did manage to see them graduate. Right. Well, that was really that was a nice sort of tick in the box for yeah. me. Um, so yeah, really good intake. And you taken a job in the army like you said the job in the army happened to you yeah whereas this sounds like it was sort of thrust upon you by absolute chance and you grabbed it with both hands yeah um well, yeah i did i mean it, to some extent it was a case of whilst you're a pt pt is great fun as i say pt is not hard right. sports therapy is fun yeah um but the problem with it is you're self-employed yeah so when you're not working you're not earning yes there's pressure well there. i had a mortgage yeah. So when they offered me two and a half days a week, I thought two and a half days a week—that's a mortgage. And knowing that I can do it because I've that done it money's for years. coming in. Yeah. So that's guaranteed money. I could top it up. So that was going to pay the mortgage. So I thought, right, I need to do that because that—that's covering mortgage. Yeah. So if I suddenly go sick, I've still got mortgage. So yeah. I did that, um, and then do the PT. Whilst I'd done that for a couple of few years, then I took over as head of program because the head of program left. <laughs> and nobody wanted to apply for it. So I said, well, I'll apply for it. Um, and they said, well, you do realise if you apply for it, you have to go full time. I said, yeah, no, I do realise that. I yeah, said, I yeah. can't do two and a half days a week. as a So I took over as head of programme. Right. Um, and I'd done that for about, and when I took over, the last I took over from, um, this was still when it was the BA programme, I took over from it. And she'd said to me, she said, look, this is a real hard job. But, you know, I'm sure you'll be fine. About a month into it, I grabbed my mate, who was by then the head of the school, and I sat him down. I said, look, I've got a problem. We need to go for a coffee. So we sat down over a coffee. I said, right. And you mentioned about imposter. I said, I think I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't. I said, look, I took over from this lass. And when I when she left, she said, it's a really difficult job. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I said, and I've been doing it now for about a month, six weeks. I said, I'm not finding it that difficult. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> and he went, you're not doing anything wrong. He said, the difference is you're bringing the military head to it, so right. it's easy for you. Yes. He said, it was harder for her because she isn't used to organising. He said, you've just gone tick, 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 done. Um, so it, so was, I, it was an organisational... Were you still teaching? Were you still Oh, yeah, training? you're still teaching. You're but still you were doing also, more. what, coordinating other it, teachers? It, or? Well, it, it, head of programme is weird because you don't have any line management responsibility. So you don't manage the staff, 
but you have to try and program the staff for the various modules. Right. But you don't line manage them. Okay. So it's a real you're weird situation where you're saying to them, the seniority. we need you to be teaching on this module. Yeah, yeah, that's not a problem because I taught on it last year. The module will be in these hours. Well, if they don't like that, I can't do anything because the line I manager... See. If I hear a problem about it, if the students come to me and say, so-and-so isn't teaching what we're supposed to be teaching or they're not yeah. turning up and so on, I can't go and grip them because yeah. then I'm not their line manager. I have to go yeah. to the boss and go, you need to line manage. Yeah. So it was a real weird setup. Especially so after it, you're used to the hierarchical yeah. system of... Yeah, it was much flatter, but it meant that I had to use some of the skills from liaison, which I'd had when I was in Northern Ireland, right. where you go to people and say, look, Come on, be my best mate ever and do this and do that. Yeah. And get them to find out what made them tick Yeah. to get them to be able to do the stuff that actually you want them to do. Yeah. But I, I wasn't finding it difficult. And I did feel a bit of a, not imposter syndrome, but, but something like that. Because I'd come into academia from the military. Yeah. And I did have some academics who would look at me and go, well, you're ex-military. What do you know? Yeah, you, know, you you just you used to shout at people. You know nothing, you know what? And occasionally you'd think maybe they're right. Yeah, um, because I would always treat the first years like I used to treat recruits, i.e., that's the line. You cross that line and you're in trouble. Yeah, no black and white. In my lectures, my lecture starts at nine o'clock. If you're not there by five to nine, the door will be locked because the lecture's going to start on time. Yeah. You're not coming in when you're late unless you've got a good excuse. Yeah. So if you come in late, it's rude, it's ignorant, and it's upsetting me and it's upsetting everybody else. Yeah. And I'd have these rules set out from day one. Right. And then I would ease them off. I see. Because then I could be easier with them because they'd still remember we still have to do those rules because, remember, we don't want to upset Mark. We've now got him being nice to us. Whereas, Did they all know your background? Oh, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas other academics would come to me and go, you need to be nice to them when they first arrived. I'd go, no. Because if you're nice to them, when you then have to shout at them or tell them they're wrong, yeah. they're just going to look at you and go, yeah, but you were nice last week. So yeah. Do it yeah. the other way around. And... So I did have this, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I am faking it. But then when you get to the third year, the number of them that would come to you and say, we want you to look after us for our dissertation, or we want yeah. you to do the work because we like you and we trust you. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's the final arbiter. They think I was right. Yeah, I, I was nasty to them in the first year, but they're now talking <laughs> to me. So I'm obviously doing something right. And I think sometimes so, rules... I mean, they talk about it with, with little kids. I've got a two-year-old. Yeah. That actually, it's less safe and secure when you don't know what the rules are. Yeah. Having some boundaries and knowing where the lines are yeah, keeps agree. you in kind of a, a secure environment where you know where yeah. the, what the lay of the land is, don't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, it, one of the mature students actually said to me, she, she was working in the students' union, and she had some of the mature students complaining about, you know, not talking about me, and they're going, Mark, he's scary, isn't he? He's really scary. And she went, <laughs> I worked with him. I was one of his students for three years. He said, what's scary about him? They said, well, you know, she said, how much is he asking you to do for next week's work? They went, oh, not much. And she went, no, he yeah. won't ask you to do a lot. Yeah. He'll ask you to do a couple of things, but he will expect you to have done it. Because yeah. if you don't do it, you're leaving. Yeah. She said, but he won't ask you to do a lot. Yeah. All you've got to do is do those two things, then rock yeah. up. And guess what? It's an easy time. So it wasn't you weren't barking orders at that you weren't drill sergeant you were you were it was simply that you had fixed yeah, boundaries. That's what I want. Yeah. You will learn this. I yeah. want you to come in next week having revised this. Yeah. If you don't revise it, don't bother coming in <laughs> because why should you benefit from the others who have revised it? Yeah. You know, um, bring a pencil and paper with you because you're going to need to make notes. Why haven't you got a pencil and paper with you? Um, well, have you got a photographic memory? No. 
well, go on then, go away. Yeah. Because you're wasting my time yeah. and everyone else. Um, and some of the other tutors started to do the similar system. Uh, a very good friend of mine actually threw half his cohort out from a lecture because <laughs> it was the first lecture and half of them hadn't turned up with pen and paper. Yeah. And he went, this is an hour-long lecture and you haven't got pen and paper with you. Did no. you notice through through your career that getting worse or better or how, you know, because presumably that is when people first start at university, it's a big change for them. There, yes. is, there isn't anything like that. So presumably you're not just teaching them information, you're warming them up to that lifestyle as well. well. That was the other problem we had was a lot, some academics thought they were there to teach that degree yeah which you are yeah don't get me wrong you know and you're there to teach that module but i always thought we were there to do more than that these young people it, when i started on the ba program most of the students there wanted to become pe teachers right so i thought well some of the things we need to be teaching them yeah. is the standards they would want to expect of a pe teacher so we, i would always turn up dressed properly yeah on time yeah in the correct kit yeah tidy neat etc etc to say to them this is what you would expect and you will expect this when you're teaching so here's what the standard and this is what the standard i'm going to set and i expect you to do it if i ever turn up not in this then that's your excuse not to yeah yeah. but at the moment if i do you will yeah so they did um and i think my argument was always we're trying to teach them more than... Yes, we'll teach them the degree, but to some extent, they'll learn the degree because they'll yeah. go and revise it. Yeah. We're trying to teach them all the soft skills, yeah. like how to work together, how to do interviews. And all. So I used to teach a module which included things like interview skills, writing CVs and so on. Right. Because if they went out without all of that, yeah. the first job they applied for and somebody went, oh, York St. John's student, oh, they're not very good. Yeah. I wanted those people they went to for their first interview to go... Good students, this lot, yeah. this lot are preparing them well. They're on time, they look yeah. the part, they know the That's stuff. It. That they, because yeah. it, then if they get used to that, it's a lifestyle thing for them. Um, and Touchwood, I think it really, it yeah. worked. That's interesting as well. Because, yeah, it's it sounds, if you don't mind me saying, quite old school, that oh, idea yeah. no, of that, that, yeah. that way I mean, of... And of, I'll quite happily admit, yeah. you know, I'm ex-military, so I yeah. am old school. Yeah. Um, and we did have some academics who went, oh, why are we teaching? Why are we doing interviews with them yeah. for but jobs? Did you, and did, we, did you have some control over what went into that at this point? Then? Were you helping? In the work-based module, yeah. yes. Um, so I introduced the fact that they had to do um, a, a mock job interview. Right. They had to apply for a job and have a mock job interview because um, I thought that would be a beneficial to them um, the stupid things like, you know, I had one lad come in for an interview. He'd applied for a job as a gym instructor. And I said, right, you know, what experience have you had of working in gym? And he went, none at all. <laughs> well, in a reality, <laughs> if you'd done truth. that in reality on a gym interview, you'd be walking out the door without the job. Yeah. So we, we carried on with the interview. And then at the end, I said, right, feedback. And as we're going through it, I said, right, what jobs have you done? So we started talking about jobs he'd done where he'd worked with people, he'd worked with money, he'd helped with organising, with planning and everything else. Yeah. And at the end of it, his feedback was, all of that stuff is relevant. When I said to you at the start, what job, what experience have you of working with gyms? You yeah. should have said, none in a gym. However, yeah. I've worked with people where I've organised times, this, I've organised, make sure that. I said, you've got all the skills to fit the job. Yeah. You just don't link them. Stop linking them to a gym. Just yeah. think about what you've got. And, and it could be hard, I suppose. Afterwards, he came back to me and he said, that was really useful. He said, because I've just applied yeah. for a job. 
and I hadn't got, but I got it because I've used the, the thing to, oh no, but I can come at it from a different angle. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't have had that if we hadn't done a mock job interview. So I used to argue with other academics that it was important for that reason. Yeah. Just that one person made it. That's the reason we're doing this. And But their argument was, we're here to teach a degree. This has got nothing to do with the degree. They can yeah. learn this by going to the careers department in the university. Yeah, the if they do. Yeah. But the careers department is looking after the whole of the university. That's 6,000 students. We've got 60. So yeah. let's deal with our 60 and help them. And make sure that when we talk to them again in five years, ten years, yeah. they've got jobs, even if they're not relevant to this particular yeah, profession. they've used the soft they've skills they've got the from it. Um, so it's a skill everybody needs. I it? think so, and, and I've a, always thought so. It's, it's, a, it's always struck me as a bit... Not everybody's an extrovert. Not no. Some people do struggle to like link communication, link ideas, and yeah. you know they get nervous under pressure and all that. So actually, the way that people are selected for jobs kind of weighs in favour of people who are able to talk. Yeah. And, well, on paper, based on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an introvert. Right. Yeah. Always have been. Right. But because of the stuff I've done in the military and because of I'm applying for jobs and all the rest of it in the past, I know what I need to do to get round that. I see. And to, well, I'm sitting in a job interview. What have you got to do? You've got to research, you've got to get, you've got to prepare, you've got to do all of that, yeah. and you've just got to come in and sell it. Yeah. Uh, and every job application, once I got into the university, I I got promoted, I got all the jobs <laughs> I needed, because you could stand and go, come on in, talk to me. Yeah. Yep, let's give it. Um, it sounds like such a remarkable, n- not orthodox career oh, path vastly not orthodox yeah. i mean i applied for the institute of learning and teaching which is now the higher education academy and it's a three thousand word application and i wrote it in an afternoon submitted it and the assessors in york st john went this is the most weird off <laughs> off the wall version but we'll use it i got membership and they then used mine for the next year as an example of how to come at it from a non-traditional route. Because yeah. they said, well, everybody comes into academia through university, doing undergraduate, master's, PhD, yeah. job. You haven't, yeah. but you've still got the same entry. So we're going to use yours as an example of, see, you don't actually have to come yeah. at it from the normal one. You can get it through this. I it's quite nice for them to see something different, different for once. Yeah, and I think that was why... Certainly from the students' point of view, a lot of the students went, well, no, we'll talk to you because you've got some life experience. Yeah. You haven't just been you know, academic. Yeah. And whilst you're in academia, you've done a part-time job just to yeah. serve them some money. You've actually yeah. gone out and done some real world. Yeah. And you can talk to us about that real world and go, right, we're doing sports massage. Here's the score. This is what you're learning. But when you're out there doing it for real, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, it's respect. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, I knew Jack because Jack had been a student and was then head of the students' union. And I, I think... Jack was one of the better presidents of the student union. And that's not because it's Jack, although it was because it was Jack. Yeah. It's because Jack, like a few others, he did two years as president of the student union. Most students do a year as student yeah. union president. You can't do anything in a year. Yeah. Because you're going to spend the first couple of months trying to work out what exactly you're doing. Yeah. You're then going to spend the next few months thinking, I can achieve the world. Yeah. And then the last <laughs> couple of months thinking, Grief, I'm leaving. What am I going to do when I leave? Of course, yeah. Whereas because you do two years, as Jack did, you do all that in the first year, 
But instead of leaving it, you suddenly think, right, I've got another year. Then reality kicks in and you then start doing, right, what can I achieve? Yeah. Not my wonderful dreams because yeah. the dream ain't going to happen. Yeah. What can I physically achieve with the limited stuff I've got and make the best of it? Yeah. And I think the two-year presidents were always the better ones. Because they have um, more Because they've got more time. They got that first year almost to settle in and go, no, forget all the bluff about how we managed to get elected. The yeah. lot, Not lies, but the really wild stories we said we were going to be able to achieve, yeah. which were never going to happen in reality. <laughs> they got you know, into power. We're That's gonna, how politics We're going to stop the students doing this. We're going to stop the... No, you're not. <laughs> get real. And then they would get real and go, right, we've got another year now. Let's try and do something. Yeah. And they would get more done. Um, and I thought Jack was really good from that point of view. Yeah. And then when he came back and he was working there with the North Yorkshire Police as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I got to see him a few more years because of that. Um, yeah, so I, I think the big thing I found with the students was you were trying to help them yeah. do stuff. Yeah. And I think a lot of them started coming to me towards the end of their times going, look, I'm applying for this, I'm applying for that. How will I do this? What will I do? What can I do to get this? And so on. So I was doing more, not pastoral Support, but yeah, a bit more mentoring to say, right, here's the score, let's go on here. I also got the students, um, a few students who would come and talk to me about problems that they were having, right? Because they felt, well, if we're going to talk to somebody, let's talk to somebody who looks like they've got some life experience because he might have the chance. Because yeah. I used to say to them in the first year, I said, listen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm ex military, I did 22 years in the military, you cannot come to me with anything that I haven't heard of or seen or faced before yeah. in my life. There is nothing you will do come to me that will shock me. So if you want to come and talk, do so. It's not a problem. You've created um, and immediately created quite a safe environment for yeah, them to say, say well, to them, look, you can. Yeah. It's not a problem. And we'll go and That's we'll sit good. down, we'll have a coffee, or we'll go and sit down somewhere quiet, and you can talk to me stuff, and I, won't, I will not be shocked. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It is not going to be bad. Yeah. You might think it's bad, but once you've talked to me about it, we will get this squared away. Yeah. I said, I will also tell you, I may not be able to answer it. Yeah. But because I'm a lecturer here, I'll know where we can go to get the answer. Yeah. So I'll know where we can go to get help. So come and talk. So I would get students coming in with personal issues over finances, over relationships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where you could not point them in the right direction because some of the other academics were, were good. We had a couple there who would point them and go, oh, go and see this, go and see that. My argument was always, if the students come and talk to me, no, I'm not going to point them there. I'm going to take them across there. Yeah. So I would take them to the students' union and say, right, we need to speak to the welfare people. Why? I need to speak to the welfare. What about? I need to speak to the welfare yeah. people. When I sit down in front of them, then I'll talk to them. Yeah. Oh, okay, so we'll get them in. So yeah. you would get them to the point where they, they're physically in touch with you. Do you want me to stay? Or do you want me to go? Some of them would take. Do you mind staying? Not a problem. Yeah. Others would take. No, I'm fine now, Mark. It's great. And they would crack on. Yeah. So you'd get them to to a position where they would help them. Because my whole argument was, you've you're coming here. You're bright enough to be here. Yeah. Well, let's try and keep you here. There was only one, I think, in all that time where I actually sat him down. He he had some discipline problems, and he wasn't turning up for lectures. So we called him in for a case consultation, and his mum came in with him which is never a good sign. And he sat down with his mum and we said, right, you haven't been to... And his mum said, well, you told me you were here. And he was telling us that he was off sick and so on. So we said, right, there's obviously a mismatch here. So left, and they said, right, Mark, we're going to give him a 
interview, then you know, talk him, sort him through. He's one of your students. I said, yeah, yeah, not a problem. So I sat him. So he obviously wasn't for it. And his big thing was his brother and sister had both done degrees. His yeah. mum and dad had done a degree. He was doing a degree. I see. So chatted away, so finished all the interviews, signed everything off. Yep, you will do this. You will be in touch and so on. And about two or three days later, I said, right, we need to have a chat. Brought over, bought him a coffee. said, right, I'm not having this chat with you. Yeah. I said, and if you ever say I had it, I'm going to deny it. Yeah. I said, you don't want to be here, do you? He went, no. I said, this is not for you at this time, is it? He said, no. I said, right, now the university and I had that conversation last week because we want you to stay. Mm. I said, and I'll be honest because it's a business and it's money and so on. Mm. I said, but this is not for you at this moment in time, yeah. is it? He said, no. He said, I, I don't want to do this. I, um, I said, is it because your mum and dad? He said, everybody in my family's got a degree. I said, I know. I said, you will probably get one. Mm. I said, but just not now. Yeah. What do you want to do? Yeah. And he went, I'm not sure. I said, well, what don't you want to do? He said, well, I don't want to be here. I said, <laughs> yeah. okay, so we'll, we'll start with that. Yeah. So we worked through some of the things he might. I said, well, you quite like that. You quite like that. I said, what about going and do that now? He said, well, I said just go. Mm. I said, if you left now, you're not going to pay any more. You're not going to pay any less. You might have a bit of money to give back from the student union, but you will be happier. Yeah. Four or five years' time from now, you might go, I'll oh, come back to university. And he went, yeah. And he messaged me about a month after that, and he went, thanks. Yeah. He said, I'm doing this. He said, it's not brilliant, but I'm, I'm earning a bit of cash and I'm happy. He's on, he's on the way. Yeah. And um, if he never goes back to university, you know. But and how much was, time would he waste if he'd kept on like he He had, would have had know? another 18 months yeah. where he wouldn't have turned in at university because he wouldn't have enjoyed it. He would have tried bluffing his mum off against bluffing us off and it would nothing would have worked for him. And at the end of those 18 months, he would have been more in debt and probably wouldn't have got a degree anyway, no. or he'd have got a third-class honours, or even yeah. just a third-class degree, and he would have really struggled later on because he'd be going with this degree that wasn't relevant yeah. and wasn't showing what he was capable of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I go. wonder how many people do that because they feel that they're supposed to, and that's the way. Well, that's how society works. Well, the more I, degree qualified I am, yeah, the more. I, th I think there are a lot. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And more and more, as they show, oh, you've got to do university. I think the the T qualifications that they've now got these tech things yeah. that might help reduce some of that. Um, but certainly, while I was there, there was there was I would say there was a, always a percentage of students who were there because it was expected that they would go to university. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when you look back at it, and, and we've mentioned it earlier on, you know, my academic career was certainly never going to end up in a degree. Yeah, certainly never going to end up teaching <laughs> at university because I I failed two out of three A levels. I got an O level pass in one. Yeah. So I was never going to get anywhere. I got into the army because I was educationally not very really bad, but I was academic I could get past the test, so I got yeah. in. Um and then when I finished I ended up with a master's degree and a lecturer at university. And I'm like but how did I that happen? But what I love is that you were the you were a lecturer first and you you were you the qualifications no, it's probably unfair to say the qualifications were because you wanted to become a lecturer. You were doing the masters anyway. Yes, but just you got the job because of your life skills, because of what you'd learned, because yes. you could talk to people, because yeah. you could train out of a book, regardless yeah. of whether you'd seen the material before. Yeah, I mean the the military is really good in preparing people to do stuff. Yeah, um, and I think the problem with a lot of people when they come out of the military is. They don't realise 
all of those skills. Yeah. I mean, a great example. I was in, I was part of um, the Institute of Leadership and Management. We were up in Catterick doing a presentation um, or listening to a presentation in Catterick. And we had this sergeant major, warrant officer class two, from the Infantry Training Centre, talking about training the trainer courses yeah. that he was writing. So he was writing these train the trainer courses and then delivering them. Yeah. And we were sat there having a coffee afterwards. And I said, look, I'm, I'm ex-army, ex-WO1, meeting, so on. I said, we've got a master's degree. I'm, I said, I'm lecturing at York St. John University. We've got a master's degree in managing, managing leadership and change. Yeah. I said, you should sign up for that because yeah. you would walk the course. Yeah. I said, because you are, you're doing it now. Yeah. You would love this. And he went, I can't do that. I said, why not? He said, because I'm a sergeant major in the infantry. Yeah. And that's all he saw. He said, I'm a sergeant major in the infantry. I said, no, you're writing, delivering courses. You're amending courses. You're quality evaluating courses. You're doing all of that. And he went, no, I'm just a sergeant major in the army. Yeah. And the problem for some people in the military is when they come out, that's what they see. I'm just a, and we, I've been looking at why this might be. And one ex one really good example I was given was maybe it's because everybody in the military can do that, so they don't see it as anything special. Yeah, it's only when you go outside when people go, "Well, I can't do that." Well, you said yourself about like you don't often get taught enough about how to do an interview, and a lot of what an interview is is translating your current skills into like relatable skills yeah. to the job and if yeah. people have never done that yeah. they I mean, see themselves as this yeah. instead I'm a sergeant major yeah did That's you feel any of that did you feel any sort of like sort of loss or grief or struggle going from the military um, sort of culture right. into Civvy Street well when I was leaving the military they all said to me join the reserves because you'll miss the military um and I thought, no, I'm, I, I've got to make sure I do a break. Yeah. I can't I can't join the reserves. It was an obvious thing to do, join the reserves, because then you're still keeping a link. And I thought, no, I can't. Um, and I left the military on the 8th of August, 1998. And about four or five months in, or after, I sat down and thought, have I missed the military? Well, I've missed the crack. Yeah. But I haven't missed it. Now, part of that was because I was running around like a, blue ass fly trying to find a job yeah. trying to find somewhere to live finishing my courses finishing the master's degree finishing the personal training course so I was doing so much yeah. that I almost didn't have time yeah. to think about leaving the military um, and the other thing I think whether this actually helped or not I don't know because I'd spent so much time not in uniform yeah. although my last couple of years my last four years I was all in uniform but because I'd spent quite a lot of my army career not in uniform. Whether that helped me settle in, I don't know. I yeah. don't think it did. No. But it's, it was one of those weird options. But I think because I was so busy for six months, yeah. I didn't miss the military. Yeah. So it didn't matter. Um, and then within a year, 18 months after that, the reserves came to me and said, look, we've got a job or a couple of jobs here that you could do if you came along. Surprisingly enough, involving training, teaching and yeah. so on. So yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, <laughs> would you like it? And at that point, I sat down and thought, right, will I be joining the reserves because I miss the military? Or will I join the reserves because I think I've still got something to offer? Mm. The latter. Right, I'll join then. I see. Because um, yeah. if, I, if I joined it, if it, if it was because I was missing it, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have done it. And it wouldn't be the Presumably, it would it never wouldn't be been. the same. I mean, it, it was it? never going to be the same anyway because no. it's only at weekends and so yeah. on. But I thought, I've still got something I can offer these youngsters. Yeah. 
that's what I'm going to do. So, um, so I, that's why I went into the reserves. But no, I was touch wood. I was quite lucky. I don't think I missed the military. I missed the the crack, the banter, the black gallows humour. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you know, you know, the one where you, you you find your soldier lying wounded in the battlefield, and he goes, "I can't feel my legs." And don't worry, son, they're over there. <laughs> um, you know that sort of. Yeah. Um, yeah. You see the same sort of humour with the fire service, the police, and so on. Yes, um, a bit warped. Yeah, oh, of, very you, warped. You've got to, very warped. Got to I mean, laugh, otherwise. I did. I did a. I do a hundred kilometre charity event every year, and the first year I did it in with York St John University was in two thousand and four. And we were coming into a checkpoint and I saw a military policeman who I'd known when I was in York for my last two years. So we hadn't seen each other since 1998. And this was 2004, so it was a long time. And I was walking down this hill with a couple of academics and a couple of students. And we're walking down and this bloke saw me and he went, you in this you and I went you and we were ripping into each other you useless, useless idle piece no wonder you're not walking you're not capable of even standing up on your own foot really ripping into each other and, we, and it was like and then we walked past and one of the academics who was a very Christian gentleman said I thought you were going to punch each other I said no we're good mates and he went that's how you greet your mates I said yeah of course you do. And that's how you do. You yeah. that's how the military you could you could not have seen somebody for 15 20 years. You join one you start the conversation the same as it, as it was when you finished. Yeah. But two, you will abuse each other <laughs> because that's what you do. Yeah. I mean, my boss when I was in York for my last 2 years, his leaving speech when I was leaving, um he said he stood up in front of all these policemen and he said when I got here, I'd known Mr. Sullivan when I was at Ashford as a young officer. He said, but I was a bit worried the first time I heard him answer the phone to Staff Sergeant Tyler, <laughs> the lad who then became a Lieutenant Colonel. He said, because the first few minutes was all him telling him he was a useless, <laughs> long streak of whatever, and he was doing it. He said, but then I realised that by the time the five minutes were over, he'd worked out what the problem was and solved it and given young Tyler the solution whilst being <laughs> ritually abused at the same time. He said, and I thought, no, it's fine. It's just the way he is. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this lad, this poor old academic thought there was going to be a fight on their hands and he was going to have to pull us apart. But I think, I think again, that's another reason why perhaps it's hard for people to like slip back into these other roles yeah. when they've just got this completely different way yeah. of communicating you do, with each other. You do have to... Not think, but you do have to think. No, I need to tone this down. No, don't, because we. No, no, the people around you in the office don't understand this, so don't get. Your, yeah. um, I worked with a, a ex-professional footballer, who's a lecturer at York St John, and he had a bit of that. Yeah. Because of ex-professional footballer, where they yeah. do. And I worked with a lad who was ex-RAF um, regiment again at, at York St John, uh, and that we could get a with because we knew each other from. Yeah. Not from that sort of background, but we were coming from similar areas. Yes. So, but the, there were some others where it was like, Ooh. yeah. Well, it's funny. <clears throat> we talk about it a bit in mm. mindfulness. The the idea of where the boundary for banter yeah. crosses into sort of toxic, whatever yes. you want to call it, yeah. masculinity. In and in and everyone's threshold for that might be different. And also. Um, people's previous experiences of things like bullying, etc., might 
yeah. you know, oh, might yeah. factor Massively. into that. And I, I wonder what your experience of that has been from inside the the army. Like, did you see any of that? Did you? Because a, a lot of people who leave the army, I understand. Um, do experience yeah when they struggle. leave early they're yeah. leaving it because they're being bullied i i was in Aldershot. i was um a sergeant due to be going to ashford as an yeah. instructor and one of the one of my corporals came to me and said whilst he was a recruit there the one of the corporals yeah. used to bring their mail around in the evening and read it to them yeah in front of them all oh, the whole squad of, and he'd be reading their mail and things like this and i thought right okay thought that's unacceptable yeah so got to Ashford. The corporal was just on his process of leaving. He was posting. And I grabbed him to one side and I said, I'm glad you're going. And I proceeded to tell him why he was glad he was going because I knew this had happened. Yeah. And he was like, you I said, no, don't even think about lying to me. Yeah. I know you did it because I've had it from people who had it done to them. Yeah. You ever try and come back here as an instructor while I'm here yeah. and I will bag you. So he left. I spoke to the sergeants and told them and they said, we didn't know. Yeah. Well, of course... Unless somebody tells you, yeah. you don't know. They're not. They might not be happy, but unless they tell you, they won't. You won't know. And the reason they weren't telling them, and I spoke, they, were, they thought, well, if the corporal's doing it, he must have got permission from the sergeant to be able to do it because the sergeant's in charge of the corporal. Yeah. So if the corporal's doing it, the sergeant must know. Well, yeah. the sergeant didn't know because the sergeant lived in that building. The yeah. corporal lived in the block with them. So they. There was this dividing line. They didn't know. Yeah. If they'd known, they could have stopped it. Yeah. They didn't know. So I made it a big thing while I was at Ashford to try and not be in the block because you need to leave the blokes to their own time, yeah. but to to get to that point where if there was a problem, they would come and tell you. Yeah. Um, so It's got to be hard, though. For... It is difficult because they see that hierarchical structure and think, yeah. that bloke's in charge, that bloke's in charge of him. Yeah. If he's doing something, the people above him must know. Yeah, but also do you not think there's part of it that's like, well, you know... Nobody else at my level is complaining about it. Maybe yeah. this is what we're expected to put up with. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you know, this I is don't the norm. Be, yeah, I don't want yeah. to be seen to rock the boat. What if people think that I just can't yeah. handle it? I mean, I think there is a much better system now there, for reporting yeah. problems than there used to be. Yeah. Um, there are they are much more open about going. Look, if there's a problem, come and tell us. Come yeah. and talk to us, and so on. I mean, we used to. There was a famous old joke in the British military. Got a problem? Go see the padre. Yeah. Um, well, that's but, that's exactly it, isn't they, it? That's essentially now, man up, yeah, almost, yeah, isn't but it? But now they they actually do mean no, go and talk to somebody. Yeah, um, because Today. there are people there available. There's now welfare people, both military and civilian, around training bases. It yeah. tends to happen more in training bases than in units. Yeah, but it still happens in some units potentially. Yeah. Um, but there is much more support for those training people. Um, yeah. to be able to get to that point of being able to talk to somebody. So I think it is much better now than That's it used good. to be. Because I'm imagining it, that it, people... Because you've invested all that to get them in. Yeah. Well, why waste money getting rid of them? Let's yeah. keep what we've got, because we've yeah. spent a lot of money getting this person to this stage. Yeah. Let's keep them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hear, you hear stories on places like building sites and in, in, in other sort of predominantly male environments where... They let people will let it get so bad, yeah. you know, whatever it is. It might not be something that someone else has done to them. It might just be that they're struggling so much with what they've seen or what's happened yep. to them that they keep it quiet because for fear of yeah. looking weak. And in, I can imagine it must be tenfold when you're meant to be going out there. Other men might be relying on you for their lives. If you start yeah. saying, I don't feel well today, it might be your career or your promotional opportunities, yeah. presumably. Well, I, th I think there was always that fear in the military of saying, we can't, I can't own up to having 
a mental health problem because if I do, I'll get booed. Yeah. Well, actually, now they're going, no, you won't. You it's won't. not a problem. That's because good. we're better off treating that problem yeah. or getting you to the point where we've treated it. Just Even if that treating means you having a chat to somebody and you go, I feel better now. Yeah. Good. Again, we've invested lots of money in you. Yeah. We don't want to waste that money. Yeah. You know, it's... Get, keep you in yeah. is a lot cheaper. Um, you know, it's the old sort of like getting working in a gym. Doing sales is really expensive. Retention is cheap. Yeah. So retention in the military and is a lot cheaper than recruitment. Yes. Because once they're in, you've invested all of that. Keep yeah. them in. You see that, and so you can see it from business sense. It's the same at the university, isn't it? Oh yeah. You can see it from business sense. Same. Retain people. Yeah. But from a real term sense. You can't approach a person like that. You've got to approach them like you have, which is, what can I do? How yeah. can we help? Let's yeah. talk to you. Yeah. Come uh, and talk that, to me, and, and then we can do something. Yeah, yeah, that I don't think in all areas of life that's filtered through yet that you might want to keep these people, but you've got to hear them out and listen to them yeah. and understand what they yeah. really need. If you don't, yeah, if you don't listen to the certainly as a as a small time manager, a small manager, if you're managing a team, yeah. doesn't matter how big, if you're not finding out what makes that team tick, yeah. you're not helping that team to be effective. Yeah. You're also not allowing that team to come and say to you, I have a problem. Yeah. Because that one pers- person in the team who has that problem, you fix that problem and suddenly you've got a better team because yeah. they're now happier. You should know your team well enough to be able to know, oh, that person's not as switched on as they normally are. What's up? Yeah. What's the problem? Um, back to that 100K walk, you get really good. Now, my sister has always said that this is because I'm ex-military. You, I get really good at spotting when somebody needs to talk to or when they need to be just left alone. Right. And my sister said to me, it's just because you're ex-military, you just know. I think, maybe it is some of that, yeah. but you do know, you can see. You're walking along with a group of people, and I, I've taken teams of up to 20 on this before, and you're walking along, and you're looking at them, and you're looking around. And we did some research one year where, on mental toughness, right. where the lecturer doing it, mental toughness had always been looked at from elite perspective. And always elite perspective once they've finished an event. So if you've finished the event and you've won it, you you're going to be mentally strong. Yeah. If you've finished the event and you lost, you're going to be mentally weak. Right. So he thought, right, one, we're not going to do elite people. And two, we're going to do it during the event. And let's see how it is. So he talked to our students, these students and myself early on in the walk. He'd walked one leg with us. And then he had a few legs off. And then he came and talked to us on one of the later legs. Um, asking similar sort of questions just to find out what the difference was. And the things he found was one was um, heavily into how much they've invested into it so they want to keep going. But the interesting one, and he, he said this to me afterwards, he said, cracking one from me, he said, he came to me, and I don't remember him asking me, he said to me, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, no, are you really all right? You know, physically, man. He said, have you got any blisters? I said, I've got no idea. He said, what do you mean you've got no idea? I said, I've got no idea. I said, because when we get to the checkpoints, I haven't got time to look at my feet because I've got to look after all of them. I said, and if I've got blisters, I'm not... I said, so I don't care and I don't know whether I've got blisters because I'm busy looking after them. They're first. So to some extent, leading means you can forget about your problems because you've got to look at their problems first and fix them. So I'd be walking along and I'd be sat there and I'm thinking, right, 
that person yeah when we get in the checkpoint that one needs a bit of a chat this one no they're all right we can leave them that's right this one no they need to be left alone because they're in a zone where if we talk to them now they'll get to the next checkpoint and they'll sack it and we were doing it this year and we were coming along and we got into this checkpoint and we were doing sort of like five or ten minutes of the checkpoints and i came in i grabbed the support crew i said the next checkpoint he said what i said get some water warm water and some salt in the foot baths and he went yeah okay so we got in we came to the next checkpoint i said right you know usual i said right we're working time um you got an extra five minutes folks if you want to soak your feet and they all went oh yeah and the lad said to me he said that wasn't planned was it yeah it was but they don't think it was they think they're being given extra time and look at the difference it's made for them all they're a sparky yeah um so as you mean it, so it was already scheduled <coughs> oh yeah for them, I'd it scheduled felt it, like for... but for them it's like extra time Ooh, oh happy yeah. days um okay. and this poor lecturer he came along with us and he said right i want to talk i said do me a favor don't talk to that lass over there he said why not i said because she's in a zone at the moment and if you talk to her she won't finish She's just got her head down and she's just doing it. Leave her. And he went, but it'd be really useful. I said, no, I agree. I said, you'd probably get better information out of her than all the rest combined. But by doing that, she won't finish. So you have to leave her alone. Talk to the rest, but just leave her alone. And he went, oh, that's such a shit. I said, I know. From a research (laughs) point of view, I'm killing you, but I don't care. You'll kill her if you talk to her. Um, So you do get to know really well. And I think certainly when I was a lecturer, with the students, you got to know the students enough to where you could go in and be working with them and you'd think, ooh, something's not right. Then you'd finish the session, you'd go, everyone all right? Said, Just have a quick word. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Look, what's going on? What do you mean, Mark? Something's not right. Come on, we'll go and have a chat. Yeah. Um, and you could, not all the time, don't no. get me wrong, but you'd spot one and you'd think, you're not sparking as normal or... There's something not right. Yeah. Let's come and sit down and have a chat. And you'd nine times out of ten, you'd and they'd go, "How did you know?" I just knew. Yeah. There was something there which just said, "Yeah, we need to. Yeah, we need to have a little chat." That's absolutely fascinating. It, I mean, we we, we talk a little bit in the, some of the suicide awareness training that I've done, things like that. That there is a, a part of the, our gut instincts of our natural sort of sense yeah. that we'll sometimes miss if we were if we're not listening to it yeah but the idea that you can pick up on somebody just from you know them being in the same room as them or that what how they're sort of holding themselves i wonder if that's like years of being in rooms with lots of people and having to do these things quickly like you say at an early age moving quickly and having to get to know people very fast you know i think some of it might be that um it's weird it might also be just the army system of that's how we train and so we'll do it it's a mixture of a lot of things um certainly when and we've we touched on a couple of when we were doing the tv series we had people in there um young lads doing this this national service for 28 days um and you could very you got good at spotting those who were were going to be fine or those were thinking right that one needs a bit more work and so on or this one's a complete waste. They're not going to do this, etc. Yeah. Et um, so, what could you tell me about the TV show? Then, yeah, we did, basically. I I answered an advert in in Soldier Magazine, and Soldier Magazine used to come out monthly. I think it comes out every two weeks or monthly now. Um, and the advert said, "Who and instructors wanted to recreate 1950s national service?" So I phoned them up. 
he was a TV company, so I had a bit of a chat. And they said, right, will you come down and do a piece? Said, yeah, so I went down, had an interview, went through my CV again. They said, yeah, it's really good. Can you do a piece to camera? So, yeah. So they brought these three lads in. And said, so I shouted and screamed at these three lads. <laughs> and they thought it was really funny. I found out later the reason they thought it was really funny because everybody they had in for that whole day shouted at one bloke in particular and picked on the same <laughs> one bloke. And he was the, the, the son of their main the owner of the company <laughs> this poor lad was getting hell for the whole day so, uh, um, but at the end of that they said right you, you, you probably you've got the job yeah. um, any questions for us I said yeah I said when are we doing this video because I assumed what they were going to do is record a video and just put it out they went oh no it's not a video it's a reality TV show for four weeks they said we're going to film for four weeks and you're going to do recruit training and I went yeah okay they went that's not a problem I said no no it's fine it's, it's Buffett Army Sergeant Mark Sullivan introduces himself to the lads. He's not the one to mince his words. Good afternoon, Montgomery platoon! Good afternoon! Good afternoon, Sergeant! Shut up, swelling you! Get down now! You blue shirt, get down! Give me ten, now! Don't look at him the man behind him! Look straight ahead! When I address you, you will refer to me as Sergeant! Do you understand Montgomery platoon? Yes, Sergeant! Better! You stop moving! Down! Give me ten now! I was out of the army. I was an uh, academic at university. Yeah, so you could and just one take... of my Well, I, I went to the university and said, look, can I take the time off? And they went, yes, you can. Um, one of the students, bizarrely, was had applied for the job, but didn't get it because the TV company went, he's from the same university as Mark, we can't have that, that might be dodgy, it might be difficult. So he didn't get it. He came in, he saw the series, came in afterwards to university, and he said, he said, I applied for that series, but I didn't get in, but they never told me why. And I'm thinking, I know why, but I'm not going to tell him, because he'll be really upset. Um, <laughs> Until he watched it and then realised that it was you. <laughs> yeah, it was me. But he still didn't know why he didn't get it. Right. He didn't connect the fact that I was on it. He just didn't get on. So, yeah, so we, they turned up, um, and they did... 28 days of national service, of recruit training in the national service. And we, had, we were the instructors. Brilliant. Um, bizarre. How was really that? weird. It was great fun. <laughs> I mean, it was brilliant fun. Well, yes, it was going back to 1950s drill and 1950s uniform, but it was great fun. Did you have to do some research in onto um, that? Yeah. Then, right? um, they, they gave us uh, Carry On Sergeant to watch um, <laughs> as a film. Um, we had to, we had a, the, the bloke who did all the kit was a military historian. Um, who gave us a lot of advice. We got lots of 1950s drill manuals, skillet arms manuals and so on. So we had to learn the 1950s rifle, 1950s drill, which was a little bit different than current drill. I had to learn the rifle drill complete. I'd never used that rifle in drill before, so I had to learn all of that. I had to learn how to wind the kit properly and make it look smart, and then did the training for 24, uh, 28 days. Um, Fascinating. Random. Absolutely brilliant. I then had a, They then had a gap of two years where the TV company sat down and thought, what, what are we going to do next? And they then said, right, we're now going to do it with bad lads. Oh, wow. Okay, right, here we go. So, they, so the first series they did with bad lads, I did the first series. I then said, no, I'm not doing the other two. And they did two more afterwards without me. What was the show called again? The first one was Lads Army. Lads Army, yeah. Um, and the second, third and fourth, the third and fourth I wasn't involved in, were Bad Lads Army. Um, basically, they took blokes in. Some of the lads had, were just naughty. Yeah. There was a couple of lads who'd done 
um, ABH. The quote from the TV company when we asked was, none of them have been done for GBH, okay. which was comforting. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, but the security team were doing most of the security. were literally lifting them and then taking them away if they started anything. Um, so the bad lads, we had a couple of drug dealers. We had a couple who'd uh, taken without consent. Uh, two that were done for ABH. Um, what, two of them, they, they were in a phone box Somebody had walked past the phone box. One of them thought this bloke had said something, so they came out the phone box and beat him up because oh. they thought he'd said something. You're just like, what? Yeah. I mean, b- bizarre. Um, so, yeah, so Lad's Army, then Bad Lad's Army, and then I, I sacked it because by then, when we did Lad's Army, the TV company didn't know what they were doing. Right. They'd said, right, we'll film whatever's <laughs> happening, and whatever's happening is happening. And we'll just film it. It's like an experiment. Yeah. They said, well, you know, if we miss something, we won't ask you to redo it because the, the blokes have got to think they're on a TV, they're on a, a training programme, not a yeah. TV programme. Yeah. So we very quickly realised that the TV company would come running if we were shouting and screaming just in case they, they missed they miss something. something yeah. So I was stood on the drill square one day. I just thought, because we're all mic'd up. So I just stood on the drill square and started screaming and shouting, yeah, to the right hand, right, right hand. <laughs> TV company come rushing around the door, what, what, what? And I went, nothing, I'm just practising. Like, oh, <laughs> they weren't happy about that. Um, so by the time Bad Lads started, the TV company was starting to think, oh, oh, we can do it. So a couple of times they said, could we redo something here? Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's not what you said. Yeah. So I thought, by the end of it, I thought, they're probably going to be tweaking this a bit. By the end of it, apparently, by the th- the second and third series of Bad Lads, they were much more, we need you to shout at this bloke tomorrow because yes. he hasn't been featuring. So, so yeah. there was much more control. Whereas the first one, literally, they filmed what we did. So we did a complete training program because they, they'd given us a training program. They said, here's what we've got. And we went, that's awful. They went, what? That's nothing like a training program. We'll write a training because we were all, three of us were all ex-military instructors. Right. So we rewrote the training program for them. And we, they go, they went, you did that quick? And we said, yeah, because we know what we're doing. Yeah. And they said, right, okay. So we did it. And we did things like regimental history. So they had to learn the full regimental history. Um, so we did all the boring stuff and they yeah. filmed everything, you know, church, as well as all the, the fun stuff. Because yeah. um, the lads were doing recruit training yeah. for four weeks. Um, so we did that one, and then, as I say, we did the Bad Lads one, where um, some of the lads there, real problem children, most of them didn't have a father figure right. at all to look up to yeah. when they joined, uh, also as they were growing up in life, so that was a real problem for them. Yeah. Um, one of them, who ended up as a best recruit, um, his, his mum had had a couple of children from different fathers and so on, yeah. and his mum was drank a lot and so on, so he's real, real problems. Yeah. Um, they came with a lot of baggage as well as the crime stuff. Yeah. Um, and were they still doing the old fashioned style as well? Oh, were yeah, they, they still, were still doing still 1950s, yeah, yeah. 1950s national service. Yeah, and the TV company had said to us about 10 days into the first series, they said, This is weird. We said, What do you mean? They said, They're just doing it. And we said, yes, because this is the army way. Yeah, what, they the were army, expecting it to go chaotic. Yeah, <laughs> they thought it was going to go left. And we said, the army way is just, that's the line, douche. And for bad lads, that really helped them. Yeah. Because it was like, one, there's your line, don't step over it. And two, you want a role model, you've got three here. We're going to be smarter than you are. We're yeah. going to be doing it better than you are. Your aim is to do it like we do. Yeah. And, and it really did massive you saw some of them all right might only have been for those 28 days mm. they might have then walked out and then gone straight back to being complete whatever yeah but for those 20 they were like oh yeah. yeah oh we can do be this because the military see. system kicked in yeah i mean imagine i assume that in real life that happens a lot too is oh, that, God, yeah. that lads yes. join 
that they've struggled, that they've got chaotic home yeah. lives, that they've been involved in whatever, they get there and you you sucked into there, it. There is a new series starting um, about um, called Soldier, which is watching people, men and women, go through the infantry training centre because they now allow women into the infantry as well, which is really good. And that will be interesting that because that will show you. People arrive, and as they say, it doesn't matter whether you come off a council estate yeah. or you're a millionaire's son, we will train you to be a soldier. We'll yeah. take you and go, right, that's what we want. We're going to not break you, but no. we're going to turn you into that. Yeah. And this is the way we do it. We do it with this, we do it with this, we do it with this. We do it with drill because you're all going to work together as yeah. a team. We do it with taking you through that muddy pond for a run because everyone's going through it and you're going to do this. You're going to, you're going to do stuff you like, you're going to do stuff you don't like, but you're all doing it. You'll all have the same haircut. You're all going to look the same. And by the end of it, guess what? You're working together. Um, when my father first got commissioned, way, way back in the, in the 70s, um, he was working at an army education centre where soldiers would join who couldn't read and write. So they were taught enough to be able to pass military training um, and then would join. You do now get, you don't get people who can't read and write, but you do get people sometimes who are struggling to read and write. Yeah. Um, they struggle to have passed numeracy and, and so on. Yeah. But they join the army and the army and, or the military says, here's your standard. Here's the structure that's going to support you. This is what we're going to do for you. You're going to do this. You're all going to work together. And suddenly, 20 years later, that person leaves as a warrant officer class one with a degree in his, in his pocket and all the rest of it, having done a full military career, nothing would have like that would have happened if they'd done anything else. Yeah. But the military, they found somewhere where they really get looked after and they grow with it. They're transformed. It's, it's phenomenal yeah. what it can do. If, if you put into it as much as you're going to get out yeah. it's phenomenal what it will achieve yeah. um it's it's massive and it does help take that bloke off the housing estate who's probably going to end up in prison yeah. and go right guess what do this yeah. and you can make a difference yeah. um and you you didn't see that in the intelligence corps because they tended to be brighter when they joined yeah. uh, but certainly I've worked with blokes from other companies who say if they hadn't joined They'd have ended up in Nick somewhere, yeah. Um, but they joined and they're doing it. They're working with yeah. me in the bodyguard and so on, and they've gone full career. Bash. So then you kind of it makes sense that even doing sort of old-fashioned forties, fifties drill, even <coughs> only a month of it, like it was bound to have some impact oh, yeah. on these kids, yeah. wasn't it? How long That's, that impact lasts yeah, for? Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Um, but It'd be interesting you, to have found that out, like a, a, a show a year on, finding out. Yeah, where they we were. we asked. We said, yeah. "Will you do a follow-up show?" And the TV company said. If somebody's interested in paying it, because yeah. it was an ITV series, so you needed that advertising money paid, uh, and you couldn't get that, yeah. which was a shame. What an amazing we all thought thing it was to be interesting. Yeah, what an amazing thing to be involved with. It was like fun. <laughs> another just string to your bow. Well, it, it was that weird thing of, well, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, and then you know the. The best life was I then went back to lecturing and, of course, the TV shows were going out, so the students were coming. And the, fir the new first years arrived that year, um, freshers, and the freshers week and all the rest yeah. of it, and we're doing the introductions. And you could even go, it is him. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And then one lad <laughs> came up. You kept it quite close yeah, to your I chest. Did, I didn't say anything. You know, I'm not going to tell. I'm not going to stand there and say, ladies and gentlemen, I was on live. You might have seen me on yeah, TV. I'm a TV star. <laughs> and this one lad came over and he went, excuse me, Mark. I said, yeah. He said, Jim's got a question to ask. I said, well, if Jim's got a question, Jim could come and ask me. So they went, oh. So he went back to Jim, and Jim comes walking over and went, um, Mark, yep. 
were you that sergeant on Lance Army? <laughs> yes, I was. Oh, my God. Mark, I will get my work in on time, I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you will. That's, that's so cool. I'm going to see if I can find some clips to oh, share. Oh, you'll find some clips. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so did you get a taste for the you know, show business world? Was no, I mean, of- one of the lads who did Lads Army decided, he was coming out of the army at the time, he decided that's what he wanted to be. Because yeah. um, he, he, he saw, we had um, Kane Thornton, Oh, Kate yeah. Thornton was doing presenting for us on ITV2, um, doing a bit more in-depth interviews. He saw what she was doing and he thought, I can do that, this is easy. Yeah. I can be a TV personality. So he got himself an agent. Right. The only difference for that was on the next series, we were still paid the same as we got on the first series and he was paid shed loads more because he had an agent. I see. Um, but he didn't get many more jobs yeah. out of it and he's, he's sacked all that off in the end. Yeah. Um, no, no, I got a, a couple of stage appearances right. in a theatre company up in Scotland. Um, I was offered a pantomime in Scotland, but it would have been four or five weeks in Scotland. Um, At Christmas time. Six days, six days a week and all the rest of it, with about a day off for Christmas Day. And I just thought, yeah. I can't be bothered. No, thanks. Yeah. They hadn't written a part. They were going to write a part for me. Because they went, we've seen, you, we've seen you on the stage shows. Come here. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I thought, no. Um, yeah. So yeah, a couple of stage shows in, in Scotland with a, a small theatre company, which was good fun. Um, an appearance on The Gadget Show, because one of the researchers on the Gadget Show had used had been a student at York St John, had seen me on the TV and had seen me teaching circuits and thought of me when they needed something to come along and do the job. So they, she contacted me and she said, "Can you come and do this?" So my job was to basically go. Um, the Gadget Show people were looking at um, thermal kit, warm right. kit. You know these thin layers that you wear, like Under Armour and so yeah. on. Other names are available, <laughs> and they wanted me to go over and beast them. Right. Um, it was a theoretical beasting because what they did was add flames to, to make them look like they were being exercised. And I exercised them for about five minutes and they run around going, oh, this is so hot. Oh, we're really sweating now. This is really hard work. How do you feel? How do you? Oh, I'm really hot. And I'm thinking, really? If you wanted me to beast you, I can do. But um, it wasn't it was a beasting. Act, it was, it was a pretend beasting yeah. Yeah, to make yeah. it look good for them. Yeah. Um, but, you know. So that that was it. I thought, no, that'll do for me. Um, I spoke to a bloke this week who said, look, you know, if if I needed somebody to come in and do some extra work, because he's got into acting, this lad, he said, would you be about? I said, yeah, you give me a shout. I'll turn up and do it. It's not yeah. a problem. Um, I work with a bloke, or I worked with a bloke in the bodyguard who uh, was a TV um, extra and so on. And he was on, his main bit that he was on was Love Actually, where he sang with um, Hugh Grant because he was the uh, police bodyguard for Hugh Grant and he was on the series with me, ex-army, got into acting, got himself an agent and did some TV work. Right. Um, but no, it did, you know, it was, yes, it was good fun yeah. and it gave me an insight as to what's going on. Yeah. But, and did if somebody said, do you want to do some more? Yes. But I wasn't, it wasn't sort of like, oh yeah, this is me. Yeah. And I suppose you've got, you've, you've got this second I'd career. Already, this would have yeah, been a was, third career. Yeah, I was already doing lecturing. So I just thought, yeah. oh, this is, this is a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, nice. So, yeah. Amazing. Just incredible. <laughs> and I, I suppose if we could talk a bit about another TV appearance, but a, a, a completely different one altogether. Um, what you're up to now, uh, what you've been working, yeah. your work as a beef eater. Right. I'm not a beef eater. Oh, right, okay. Beefeaters live in the Tower of London. They are the warders of the Tower of London. Okay. Um, and they live in the Tower, and they work in the Tower. Um, we are members of the, now, King's Bodyguard of the Yeoman of the Guard. I joined the, the King's Bodyguard, or the Queen's Bodyguard as it was, in 2011. 
Uh, my first duty was with on o President Obama's state visit. Um, we provide the ceremonial guard for the sovereign in high-profile events, so investitures, garden parties, uh, Maundy services, garter services, that sort of thing. Wow. State visits, state opening of parliament. We do all of that sort of stuff. Um, we, the yeoman warders, wear the same uniform as us, except we have a cross belt and they don't. I see. So, been doing that, as I say, since 2011. And obviously, um, September of last year, I went on the Thursday, Her Majesty died. I did the Great North Run on the Sunday. And I was on the way back and I'd, we'd been getting emails saying, right, you're going to be all needed, you're on duty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I said, right, when am I needed? Am I needed on Tuesday? And they said, no, we need you Monday morning because we need eight people for the first rehearsals and I need eight people who are smart and who could do drill and you're one of them. So I finished the Great North Run, got back to York, booked my ticket to London, booked my hotel for London for Monday night, got changed, went down to London on Monday did eight of us did the rehearsals on the Monday um, in an army barracks. We did rehearsals on the Tuesday in Westminster Hall, and then on the Wednesday we were the first um, four of the first four were on duty when Her Majesty was brought into Westminster Hall, and I was one of the first four that took over on the vigil. We then did twenty four hours on, twenty four hours off for the whole of the time she was lying in state in Westminster Hall. Um, Stood. Uh, yeah, 20 minutes stand, off for about an hour and 40, and then another 20 minutes for 24 hours. I, along with 11 others of us, were involved in the procession as well. So we did the rehearsal for the procession at Thursday morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, because it's the only time you can get the streets of London closed. So we did the rehearsal, we carried on with the sovereign. Um, the yeoman warders at this point were helping us out, 10 yeoman warders, came in each day to help the bodyguard because there was 24 of us on duty. But obviously, if you take 12 away, there's only 12, so they're going to be doing more. So 10 yeoman warders came in and helped us. Um, so they were on duty with us. So it's not, it wasn't just ceremonial. You were also physically there all the time throughout the Yeah, the when, we, and... when we came off the, the vigil, we yeah. were in Westminster Hall. We had a restroom where we were, had, which was obviously lit for the whole 24 hours. So we were trying to get some sleep there. Um, feeding... Um, eating and everything else, we were there. Um, so you could take your tunic off, take your shoes off, um, and try and get some sleep. And then an hour and 40 minutes later, you were back on again. So we did that, and then we were bussed back to Windsor Castle, stayed at Windsor Castle, and then back in 24 hours later to do it again. Um, Monday, um, we were taken off duty, got a quick shave, got a smart smartened up, and then we marched um, with Her Majesty from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey for the funeral wow. and then from Westminster Abbey through London to Waterloo Arch where she was taken into the hearse back to Windsor Castle. As we were about to step off from Westminster Hall back to that everyone doing things as a team, the garrison sergeant major who's in charge of the whole ceremonial came to us and said, gents, please stay in step with the bearer party, the guardsmen who are carrying the coffin. They will be in front of you. Please stay in step with them. He said, because... I'm relying on you to be in step because I'm taking my step off you. Right. And we said, okay, so no pressure. If we get out of step, the main man's out of step. And he said, but it's not for me. He said, because his majesty and the royal party will be taking their step off me. So if I'm out of step, they're out of step, and it'll be your fault. 
Right, here we go. So no pressure. You just thought, right. So we marched out with the pipes and drums to Westminster Abbey. We were fallen out from Westminster Abbey during the service. And we were then fallen back in around the coffin, around the the gun carriage. And Majesty was brought back onto the gun carriage. We then escorted it through London, uh, as I say, to Waterloo Arch. Her Majesty left. Then we went back to St. James's Palace, where we got changed, put our suits back on, and then we went back home. Um, that Monday, because we'd started Sunday morning, um, I got back home, took the dogs for a walk, and I felt a bit tired. Wow. I worked out I would, I'd been awake, other than the odd 20-minute nap, for about 40-odd hours. So no wonder I was a bit tired. So, yeah, so we did the... I was involved in both elements, the vigil wow. and the... The procession through London, um, and that was one of those where you just thought all one of the lads um, was away on holiday and said, "No, I've got to be back for this. You know, this is what we sign up to do. Come back for this." It was a s- tremendous honour. I mean, it just yeah, superb. It's my jaw is dropped. You yeah, know, just it, was, a, it was. I can't imagine what that must have felt like well, after after the career that you've had and the the years that you've put in in the service and. Um, but also, I suppose as well, leaving the army and going away and and, and coming was, back to, for such a remarkable yeah, occasion. Well, it, it was really weird because all of us, when you join the armed forces, yeah, you don't you don't swear an oath to the government, no, or to the country. Yeah. You swear an oath to the sovereign. So Her Majesty was our was the person we'd all swore an oath to. Yeah, and there we were guarding her, um, and. It was a real mix of emotions, obviously, because of that. Um, one time where I... It got very dusty in there, I think, is what my version of events, um, was because I was stood there on vigil, and you, yeah. you stood there for 20 minutes with your head down, yeah. and this lady walked past and said, thank you very much for guarding her. Oh. And that really... That choked you up a bit. You thought, yep, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, and crap. But yeah, it, superb. I mean, it was just... It was an honour. It was unique um, because certainly for all the senior members of the bodyguard we will never do that again in no. our careers um yeah absolutely phenomenal and just for, for a monarch to serve that long yes and to hold the sort of integrity and respect and yeah and just massive f- f- just relentless um class yeah for one human being to be oh, able to yeah, handle I, that for I so agree. long i mean um, when you can see she was probably the most photographed person in the world the most famous person in the world by everybody uh just yeah phenomenal um so yeah it was it was unbelievable overwhelming i can't imagine what that must have felt like and also i know what it's like when you know you've you've again i'm not not comparing these things in the slightest but um practicing your drill and then you go on a on a camp and you do a parade or you do something with a band and you've got an officer there and suddenly you're nervous yeah. and that those oh, nerves Chris, kick in well, everything is now, harder we were doing it every every say every couple of hours we were on for 20 minutes but you knew that there was a live feed in there and the whole world was watching this live feed God. um so you knew every time you went on you've got to get you've got to do this yeah. right one you've got to do it right because the world's media is looking at you yeah. but two you've got to do it right for the boss yeah we we've got to do this for the boss and yeah. The 12 of us who were on the funeral, before we stepped off, we said, 
we've got to do this for the boss. We've got to do this right. The commander in chief of yeah. the armed forces, yeah. and you're you're we've, there. Represent- we've got to do it. Yeah. So it was, yeah, unreal. Wow. So we we finished that. And we came away. Everything settled and all the rest of it. And then obviously planning for the coronation started. Yeah. Now the coronation didn't need as many of us. Um, so what they said was we would they would pick us from the more longer serving members of the bodyguard. So those who've been in the longest, those who were old, basically the older ones. Yeah. And from those, they would pick the ones who are not as firm or fit would yeah. be in Westminster Abbey. There would be four tall blokes around the state coach and there will be a marching contingent. And I was going to be on the marching contingent. Um, the week before the coronation was the London Marathon. I desperately wanted to run the London Marathon. And I was going to take a charity place. But my my family said to me, uh, my sisters and so on, they said, if you run the London Marathon and get injured, we will never speak to you again because you won't be on the coronation. Mm. And the reason for that was because my father was on the Queen's coronation in 1953. Wow. So I was going to be on the King's coronation. Um, so I thought, right, I've got to, so I can't yeah. run the London Marathon. So we did the rehearsals and we did two rehearsals um, on and off. We then did a full dress rehearsal two o'clock in the morning, usual thing, because it, roads are closed. And we marched through, and the, the coronation route took us through Admiralty Arch, down the Mall, and so on, back in the park. And again, back to that, everyone doing it together. Yeah. The soldiers have been practising for 10 days. Yeah. We got three practices because we should, in theory, know what we're doing, and we're following everyone else, so it's fine. We went through Admiralty Arch, and I, I got back to the room, and I thought, just check something. I can literally say I've followed in my father's footsteps because he went through the same arch in 1953. Wow, and that was by chance, was that? Yeah. That yeah. was just by chance. I mean, chance. it was just the centre arch, wow. and we went through the centre arch, and I looked at it, and I thought, that's... grief, that's cool. Um, but my dad did get his own back. My father died while I was in Northern Ireland, and he was, in a, he was a guardsman. So his ashes are scattered in the guards' chapel, which is in Wellington Barracks. So we were in Wellington Barracks waiting to go on duty for the coronation. So I said to the, the Sergeant Major, I said, look, I'm going to go and pay my respects to my father. And they went, yep, not a problem, no worries. So I went across, and I thought I was just going to go to the gardens because I assumed the chapel would be shut. Yeah. The chapel was open, and inside the chapel is a plaque to my father that we, we had installed on the wall. So I went and had a chat to the plaque, then went out, went to the gardens, paid my respects to my father, came back. We then stepped off. And it rained and we got wet. I blame my father. Because in 1953, when he did the Queen's coronation, the two things I always remember him saying was, one, what a great day it was, but two, how wet it was because it rained a lot. Right. And I think he sat there and when I went away, he went, go wet his head, will you? Get get our own back on him. Why should he get away with it when I didn't? And the rain, I, 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 the rest of the bodyguard said it was your fault. Your dad, your dad, your dad did that, didn't he? So yeah. So I'll take that. Um, my father got us rained on. Um, wow. So yeah, but brilliant. What um, a full circle. Yeah. Remarkable I mean, moment. literally, it, it, I mean, it, it couldn't have not fallen better, but it was pure accident. Yeah. But it was just like, oh, this, yeah. Yeah, that must this have been is it. like the layers of emotion that you must have felt at that it event. It was really, really weird. I mean, I did a piece for Look North. Um, Amy Garcia came down and, and interviewed, and we walked around the route. And at one point, she said, "Do you get emotional about it?" I said, "Yes, of course I do." I said, "But your training 
covers you for that. Yeah. You don't sort of walk along and suddenly burst into tears. Your yeah. training goes, right, this is what we've got to do. This yeah. is where we're going. This is where we're going. Children. I said, you can still enjoy enjoy the whole thing, but your training. And she went, what? That's, that's <laughs> why you were there. That's why you were there because you are, you, yeah. you've, yeah, we you can, are so ingrained in Yeah, we can that, do this. It's not a problem. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. But then we finished that and all the older members of the bodyguard were all chatting and we realise now that I have four more years left in the bodyguard um, and we've done all the big things now. Yeah, well, it doesn't We're get We're now much back bigger. to normal duties. Um, there won't be, yeah. or, you know, unless a massive accident occurs, there won't be anything as big as that for the rest of my career as a bodyguard. Mm. So all I've got to do is just keep ticking the boxes. Yeah. Um, and I'm now taking over next month as the Sart Major of the Bodyguard. Oh, right. So I'm, I'm going to be moving down to London, living in London. Um, I was going to be living in St. James's Palace. I'm actually going to live next door to St. James's Palace in Marlborough House. Wow. And um, I'm taking over as the Sart Major in charge of the Bodyguard um, for my last four years. As a, as a full-time role, is that? Um, yeah, it's, it's four days a week. Wow. So I do that for four days a week and then come home at the weekends. Um, massively proud of that massively wow. proud I mean I couldn't be proud of um, but it's this odd one and we, we've touched on the mental health side of it it's this weird one where I cannot wait but I'm also the the thing that's kept me through all of my life well certainly since I was at Ashford I love exercise yeah. and I do exercise and I go running and all the rest of it and I've always well, you did run you just slot in there that yeah. you, you wanted to run the marathon you're still running marathons I'm still running marathons <laughs> I did the coronation I did, sorry I did the Queen's funeral um, the weekend after I did the funeral I came back on the Monday that following weekend I walked 100k um, <laughs> then I had a week and a half off and then we flew to the States and I did the Marine Corps marathon in Washington DC which wasn't fast because I hadn't had training because I'd had 10 days where I didn't do much. Um, but I got round it. It's fine. And a beautiful marathon. Absolutely lovely. If, if anyone wants to run a marathon, Washington, D.C. is stunning. Because yeah. um, it's in autumn, so it's lots of colours and everything else. Yeah. So, yeah, so I still run marathons. I did 100K the 23rd of this of last month, 23rd of, of September. Um, did the same 100K. This that was my that 19th, do- 19th one I've done. So I've got yeah. to do another one next year to do my 20th. So wow. I'm doing one. Um, so, yeah, I've got to tick those in. So I've always had this thing about running. Yeah. Um, and I've then added to it exercise because I've suddenly realised you actually need to train some of the upper body as well. Personal training does be useful sometimes because I go, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do some more. So I'm doing lots of training. I also teach an exercise class. And I love teaching exercise classes. I mean, I've taught it since about the year 2000, on and off. Yeah. I mean, the maximum number I had when I was at York St. John on one occasion, I taught 150 people in one circuit class. Yeah. It was just mental. Um, the numbers have obviously gone down lots now. I now teach it at York RI. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's brilliant fun. I teach it twice a week, and it's the best fun going. It's a lovely group of people. I was going to stop when I retired from York St. John University. But I kept it going because a number of people approached me and said, look, it's really good for our mental health. Will you please keep it going? And I went, oh, all right, then. I'm shamed into keeping it going. But I actually think it's good for me as well because I'm not exercising, but I'm getting something off it because I'm doing some of that teaching and we're still bouncing around and I'm having fun with this group of people who, some of whom have been coming to the class for like 14, 15 years. Right. And they absolutely love it. Well, I've got a problem 
because when in the, on the 1st of November, I'll be starting in London. Yeah. And it's Mondays and Thursdays I teach the class, and I'll be working in London for four days. Yeah. So I'll be on the way back on Thursday. So I can't teach the class anymore. Right. I've asked around for instructors in York. Instructors are either already teaching on a Monday and Thursday, yeah. or they don't bother replying because right. they don't want to know. Right. It's a ready-made class. They're going, and I'm now in the situation where I'm going to have to I've I've organised some drinks with them um, in the middle of this month. I'm going to have to sit them down and go, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. It's going to stop. Um, and I I've got a real problem in my head with that. Right. That I don't want them to stop. Yeah. But I can't find anyone to keep it going. Right. So I'm at that situation where there is no choice really for me. I cannot not do this job in London. Of course. That is just like, that's the icing on every cake possible. Yeah. I mean, the role is Messenger Sergeant Major, MSM. My initials, and my dad must have known about this, my initials are Mark Stuart Morris, MSM. <laughs> so I was destined to do this job, yeah. whether I liked it or not, from when I was born. So I've got to do the job. But I want the class to keep going yeah. because I understand it's really good for their physical and their mental health. But I can't because there's nobody to take. All the kits there and everything else, and I just can't do it. And I, I have a real problem on that mental side of it. For me, I love exercise and I understand the benefits that exercise gives me. I understand that if I haven't run for a few days, I don't start feeling depressed, but I start to get really Ooh, ooh, I better get out because if I don't, I'm going to smack something. Yeah. So I go and exercise and it's just bang. Um, when I go for a run, it allows me to think, yeah. to go through what I've been doing during the day, to switch stuff around, to check things out and so on. Or if I, I and I love running first thing in the morning. Um, sometimes when it's dark, it doesn't matter. It's dark. Yeah, I, same, that's um, but I as it gets light, love running into the light and so on. Fabulous. Yeah. So running, love it. Exercising, yeah, the exercise doesn't give me the same buzz, but I know I need to do the other stuff. So I yeah. do all of that. But then I get that stuff from teaching the class as well. I'm not going to be able to teach a class down in London. No. Because I've got to be in a suit and tie every day for this. Yeah. So I certainly can't chill out and relax. So that's a slight, ooh, I wonder how that's going to work. But it's, but I'll have a different dynamic. So I, I should be over that one. But yeah. I am not worried. But, you know, it's a little bit in the back of my mind saying, yeah. well, if you just told the bodyguard to sod off, you could carry on teaching the class. That, well, I don't want to do that. But I to, you know, So I'm, I'm at that dichotomy of, no, you're going to have to do it. But even now I'm thinking, I've put some of the kit up for sale. Yeah. I'm thinking, if they don't buy it, I could still find somebody. To, maybe I've still got f about five days, I could still get somebody into yeah. I can't. I know no. I can't. But I'm trying Can to make... put off the point yeah. of having to say, no, I'm sorry, folks, done. Yeah, and that's yeah really I make an observation, and it's it's with you know with all due respect and the, the understanding that I've only known you for a couple of hours, yeah. but you you I can tell how much you care about other people, and I, you've got all these um, rules and boundaries and restrictions, but the reality is is that you're you're worried about letting these people down, despite having given them decade over a decade oh, yeah. of yeah. Tra training. You know, nobody yeah. would have ex would expect that of you no but you and i'm sure that, and i'm sure they'll be more than happy to say you've got to exactly. do this yeah but it's yeah that, but that just speaks volumes about the type of person that you are because it sounds like right from the very beginning that making friends very quickly traveling moving a, a decorated long service mm -hmm. um 
you know, a remarkable service. And can I say, as we approach the end of this conversation, thank you for 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 your hey, service. And, not a problem. And, um, but also that, despite leaving the forces, the armed forces, carrying those standards with you into the education yeah. system and 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 understanding people and what they need to get the best out of them despite it you know being a, a you said the reason why i think you might have survived that transition from from the difficult sort of switch between the the, the career you'd known yeah. for your whole life and um and Civvy Street, which a lot of people don't, is for the same reason why you don't look at your own blisters because you're so busy making sure everybody else is all yeah. right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I do know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, I mean it might well be. Yeah, yeah, because you, if you're worried about them, you're not. Yeah, you 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 aren't as concerned about yourself because you can you yeah. can subsume yourself in the importance yeah. of looking after something else. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. And you're worried about the blisters of this class now. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, you know, just hats off to you. <laughs> but it's time, you know, it's your time. This is, yeah. this is what, yeah. what, a, what a perfect end to an illustrious yeah. career. I mean, I, I think some of them thought I was going to be teaching the class until I'm 70. Yeah. Which, actually, you if I hadn't have. got the job, I probably would have been. Yeah. I'd have probably been coming in in a Zimmer frame still teaching. <laughs> um, but, but, sorry, folks, four weeks, yeah. four years. Um, and so, and will, will you miss the city? Are you going to be moving then? Or um, are you going to be... I am. No, no, I'm staying in York. I will work in London for four days. Yeah. So come back Thursday afternoon. Brilliant. Most of the, the royal families go away on the Friday for the weekends to yeah. Windsor and so on. So we tend to be left a bit. So hopefully Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then go back down Sunday evening to start again Monday morning. Beautiful. Or if I'm really lucky, catch the first train Monday morning and go down then. Uh, but um, yeah, so. Amazing. And you're doing what you've, you've left and you've, you've found yeah. your way back to it's, where you... It's you've... back to that. You join the army as a recruit, get to the top, leave. Join the reserves... <laughs> work to the top, leave. Join the bodyguard, work to the top, leave. Yeah. Um, get an old expansion, work to, die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very few, I think, could claim to have completed it as, as, as well as you have. I'd so. hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, just absolutely jaw-dropping stuff. I, I'm really, really grateful that you've told us your story. Not a problem. Um, I was going to ask you a lot of other questions. I feel like you've completed this interview as well, so I won't take up any more of your time. Unless is there anything else that you wanted to share? Anything we haven't talked about? Yeah, the only thing I would say is, that, and I know it's really important this this mental health, the physical health, and so on. And I said there that you know if I haven't been for a run for a few days, I start to get really wound up and all the rest of it. And I, you know, and I used to work with a bloke who was like that. And you'd say to him, "Go for a run." You go for a run and come back in. And I'm like that. I will go for a run and I'll come back or I'll go to the gym even. Although, as I say, I prefer to run. I'll go to the gym and I'll come back and I'll think, yeah. better, better. And I know it's massively important for my physical health because yeah. at the end of the day, I want to live as long as I can yeah. and die as young as I can. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is to keep physically active. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the ideal story. When you stop using it, that's when you drop dead. So you keep. So I've got to keep using it. Yeah. But it's massively important, I think, from the mental side of it, because I know it helps me. Yeah. Yes, on the exercise, I can sort through stuff that I'm doing and square things away. I can work things out in my head. It's a bit like it, meditation in its own yeah, way. Yeah, it? it's, it's it, that's my version yeah. to find the space or to clear your head. Yeah. But it also it's massively important because it means I'm more relaxed. I sleep better because I'm 
physically better yeah. so i'm going to be sleep better so that's going to help my mental side of it yeah. um I, i'm just more prepared in my head yeah. if i've been doing some exercise yeah. i think for me and I only discovered it latter stages. And I didn't link it to mental health because when I was in the military, there was no such stuff like that and all yeah. the rest of it. it was a, you just, this is it. You just do stuff. You know, it's yeah. not a problem. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think more and more as we've gone on, I've realised, and certainly when I'm working with clients, you know, in the PT side of it, and working with um, the courses where you get people into gyms who've never been into gyms before and get them into exercise, you realise just how important it is for that mental side of it because if that's right then the physical side works. Or yeah. if the physical side works, the mental works. And I, for me, by being that physical activity, it gets my head in the right space. So I go, right, okay, if I'm having a shit day, yeah. and I've had some really shit days in times, and it's so stressful, what do I, I I've got to get rid of this stress. Yeah. How do I get rid of this stress while still working? Go and do stuff. Yeah. Go and take yourself away from it. Go and do stuff that you can do. Um, I mean, and then you can come back to it and go, right, is there anything I can do to affect that? Yeah. If there is, then I can do it. If there isn't, what's the use of worrying about it? Yeah. If that bloke is an idiot and I can't change him, stop worrying about it because yeah. I can't affect that. In the same way, I can't affect if it's going to rain tomorrow when I'm out for a run. What I can do is think if it's going to rain when I'm out for a run, I better take a waterproof. Yeah. But I can't stop it raining, so don't worry about it raining. Don't worry about that bloke being an idiot because he is going to be an idiot. Yeah. Whether I stand up, sit down, walk out the room, he's still an idiot. Yeah. So ignore him because I can't affect him. Fix what I can change and then I will feel better in myself because I can go, I can change that for me and that will make me better. Yeah. He's still an idiot, but he's not going to worry me. I suppose it's compartmentalizing it to yeah. say, right, I can't do that, affect it. I can do this, I can change this, I can affect yeah. this, I can improve and I, this. It's, it's resilience to all of the other stuff, isn't it? It's yeah. like, as good as the run is, and I, I never thought I'd enjoy running as much no. as I do. Yeah. Even once I'd got going, I was like, yeah. where are these endorphins then? Yeah. But it was the bits between the runs that I felt I'm, I'm able to handle this a bit yeah. better. I'm yeah. able to it be gives bit... you that coping yeah. strategy to be able to go, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm working with a buffoon, but it doesn't matter because yeah. I can do stuff. The, the, the one thing that I think I do have, and you mentioned rain there, I do, I, I still am subject to my own um, sort of, I put barriers up, like, oh, it's wet today, oh, it's a bit cold, oh, I've got up a bit late for this one. And, and it always strikes me how um, motivation follows the action. You've got to be in your flow, you've got to get out, you've got to follow yeah, the routine, you've yeah. got to be disciplined. One of the best ways I've found with that, I joined a running club when I came to York, because I knew I was going to live in York, I thought, yeah. right, I better join a running club so I can meet people. Yeah. Because I don't know anybody in York yeah. because I'm in an army barracks. I'll join a running club. So I joined this running club um, and, yep, I started to meet people. And you'd be sat in your home and it's honking with rain yeah. already. And you're thinking, I don't want to go out running tonight. It's raining. And then you think, I better go because they'll be there waiting. Yeah. Accountability. And they're all in exactly the same position, but yeah. they're going, oh, we better go there because Sullivan will be there. Yeah. So you rock up and you all go for a run and you feel great. Yeah. And you come back. So it's that, again, back to that team thing of, yeah. well, can't let them down. I can't let them down. Well, guess what? They're all thinking exactly the same. Yeah. Um, it's, it is much worse, and I agree with you. If you're sat at home on your own training, and I, I do this training for a marathon, and I know I've got to do six miles in the morning, and there's nobody else around because it's half past five in the morning, and I look out the door and it's freezing cold and it's raining, I just think, 
I'll do it later on. Um, yeah. But yeah. you've got to go out. But yeah. if there was somebody else out there, you would automatically do, do it. Yeah. Um, so it is much more that accountability. of. Yeah. Well, I always look at it and think, if I don't do this run today, and I'm training for a marathon or half marathon, yeah. I'll have wasted the previous four weeks of running because yeah. I'll have missed this run. That is not a good plan because yeah. that's wasting four weeks. I better go out and do it because otherwise yeah, I'm wasting yeah. that and it's going to hurt more on the marathon. Oh, I'll go and do it then. So you do it. Yeah. And it's back to that. Looking at how much I've invested already, well, if I've invested four or five weeks in training, why lose that for one run? Yeah. I'll go, on, go out and do it. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, so it's a it's a bearing in mind you don't want to lose that progress. It's a, it's consistency then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's building, it's that Well, to get to 100, 100K, to, to be doing marathons, you know, into your, well, you know. 66. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I don't, you know, that's, that's, you're only as old as the, miles you're pulling out let's I face agree. it I the, agree. you know yeah. the, I, I, our age is based on the number of times we've been around the sun but, yeah but our, our life expectancy has got to be affected by what we do with those yeah. years do you I know mean, my I mean? father and, died really early yeah um 64 because he drunk a lot and done very yeah. little exercise yeah and i thought well that's not happening yeah. yeah um no um so yeah it is it's back to that i want to die as I want to be as old as I can when I die and as young as I can. Yeah. And you do that second by doing stuff. Yeah. But doing stuff in your head as well. So reading, doing quizzes, doing stuff to keep your brain active as well as physically active, yeah. doing stuff so that everything's moving and everything's yeah. keeping... Because if you stop it, that's when it dies. So Whoa. keep your brain active, do quizzes, do all of that sort of stuff, get involved in clubs. When I retired from the university... I had to keep busy doing stuff. So I still do the sports therapy, still do a bit of running, still go, go down to the London Marathon and work for four days massaging people because you've got to keep your mind active. Because if you don't, yeah, you lose it all. Yeah. And I, I just, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think, I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's who <laughs> does as much stuff or who's done as much stuff as, as you have, sir. Um, g- genuinely, this has been a, a real honour. Um, so just, yeah. And and how you've delivered that as well, like I said, oh, normally hour and a half, we're in, we're pushing three hours, so I'm I'm aware oh, that shit. I've taken Sorry. up a, a real chunky. Please, no, please, I I I honestly just it feels um it's it's genuinely an honour for you to have given me that time. Yeah, not a problem. Uh, I know people are going to get a lot from this. Um, I, I, I by the way, I didn't want to skip songs. Did you have any songs in mind? Do you want to add to our playlist? <laughs> if you if you have anything that means it's something to you, then please do let us know, and I can put it on. Elton John's your song every time. Um, yeah, that or Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Just, yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll definitely add them. Um, and I, I hope that we get to talk again. Um, I'll be keeping track of... of anytime, uh, just of, give us a of, shout. Of, of, of what comes next. <laughs> Uh, but it doesn't seem like you're slowing down anytime soon. I don't think so. No, I'm not on hands. <laughs> so happy retirement, congratulations, but also to the next chapter. Um, you know, this is um, this is really exciting, and um, I wish you all the best. Thank you again for your service. No, thank you. Um, and until next time, Mark. Cheers. Now. Yes, Mark. What a guy. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. We'd like to thank Mark for his time and wish him well at the next stage of his career. And we'd like to wish you well too for a happy and prosperous 2024. And whether you're making resolutions or not, try to remember, whatever you do, 
to keep talking.